Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Benny and Dan coming to you live from Be'er Sheva, where we're sitting down with the one and only Naftali Aklum. How you guys doing? Well, I'm doing good. I'm uh, looking forward for this uh, interview, and I hope to deliver the message. How you doing? I got to say, man, I love the hair. <laughs> I'm jealous. I am yeah. jealous. Those are some awesome Rastas. You could Rasta your beard. We I could. could. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to Rasta the beard soon. <laughs> Just a quick word before we start. This episode is being uh, co-promoted together with Tribe Herald. Tribe Herald is a fabulous brand new newspaper, uh, news for Jews of color, LGBTQ Jews, diverse communities. Uh, and builds itself as a multicultural media and local experience company that celebrates the Jewish community and our allies in all of our diversity. No matter how you look, no matter where you live, Tribe Herald sees you. Uh, and uh, it's it's a good thing. So everybody go check it out, tribeherald.org. That's T-R-I-B-E-H-E-R-A-L-D.org. And uh, Tribe is going to run a article based uh, on part of this uh, interview with Naftali. Uh, so make sure to check it out later this week when it goes up. We're excited to be uh, collaborating with them, and on future episodes, uh, we're going to be doing a little bit of collaboration with them. So real quick, I think before we get started, I'll give a little little intro here. Uh, Naftali Aklum joins us today. He was born in Ethiopia in 1979 and was amongst the first group of Jews to make Aliyah via Sudan uh, through his amazing initiative, Yerus. Why don't you tell us uh, how to spell that? Uh, Yerus, uh, Y-E-R-U-S. Okay. Uh, so he is the founder and CEO of Yerus, which is a terrific educational endeavor that's meant to promote uh, uh, not only raise awareness about Jewish Ethiopian history, but also to strengthen Ethiopian-Israeli identity through education, building self-confidence in the Ethiopian community throughout Israel and around the world. Uh, he discusses his Ethiopian Jewish history, culture, and the unique challenges faced by the community living here in Israel. In addition to that, Naftali is very well known uh, as the brother of Ferede uh, Aklum, who we'll get into uh, later on in, in the podcast. We'll tell the story, uh, but it uh, it's very, very, very integral to the to the organized Aliyah of Ethiopian Israelis to Israel um, in Operation Solomon and Operation Moses um, in the eighties and nineties. Uh, he is also uh, one of the subjects of the Netflix movie Red Sea Diving Resort, which is based on the his true story. And Naftali worked as a consultant together with Netflix on, on the film to make sure that it had historical accuracy and uh, in proper context. And we're going to get into that because it's a amazing, mind-blowing story. Yeah. 
So, Naftali, That's how you it. doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. We're sitting here in your house. We're in Be'er Sheva. Yeah, okay. and you guys are more than welcome. I'm oh, happy that you guys it. are here. Appreciate it. Uh, so, thank you for having us here. What are, you, what are you up to these days? What are you working on? Well, uh, those days are not easy, day, easy days because of uh, the corona. And uh, in those days, uh, what I'm trying to do is um, as much more Zoom events to speak and to tell the story of my community. And um, I guess we have time also to think how we want to move forward with this program. So this is what I'm doing in those days. And I hope that very soon uh, we will be able to travel Tourists will be able to come and to continue doing okay. our job. God willing, God willing. So I, we got a, probably a lot of listeners who uh, might be less familiar with the story of uh, the Ethiopian-Israeli Jewish community. So first of all, let's, let's learn a little bit about this community, please. Uh, we have a lot of listeners in Israel, a lot of listeners in North America. And as we're seeing, we got, we're starting to get listeners from all over the world, Australia, throughout Europe, East Asia. So um, Turkey, South Korea. Yeah, although I found out the Syrian listener is probably just in the Golan. So I was, hoping, hope. I was hoping we had a Syrian listener, but I don't think we do. It's someone in the Philippines. That'd be cool. Um, so first of all, how many, uh, you know, we talk about Israel, people who haven't been here, but people who are here and people who have been here know it's a very diverse landscape. Jews and non-Jews came from uh, all over the world. So how many Israelis, Jews uh, from the Ethiopian community live here today in Israel? So today we have 150,000 Ethiopian Jews living here in Israel. I believe it's less than 2% of yeah. the population here in Israel. So yeah, 150,000 Ethiopian Jews. Are there any Ethiopians, uh, Ethiopian Jews still in Ethiopia? Yeah, so we have uh, what we call the Falashmura, which is uh, a group of Ethiopian that their forefathers converted into Christianity in the late 19th century. And now they're claiming that they want to come back to Judaism. Uh, we have about 7,500 7, from the Falashmura group waiting in the capital Addis Ababa and in Gonder. And I hope that they will come as soon as possible because they are waiting too long. Why, why can't they come? Well, there was a, a decision of the government, I believe, in 2005 uh, to bring them. But from some reason... They didn't come yet. I believe that it had to do something with bringing uh, people from the continent of Africa instead of bringing people from the continent of Europe, for example. Because from Europe, if you are even just your grandfather was Jew, then it will be very easy for you to come. So with the case of the Ethiopian Jews, it's taking them a long time. And today we have a woman, uh, Prina Tamanoshata, which is the Minister of Immigration. Uh, and I believe that with her work, they will come as soon as possible. She comes, she comes from the community, right? Yeah, she's originally from Ethiopia, born in Ethiopia, and she made Aliyah in uh, Operation Moises in 1984. So we can, we can say that this is just another expression of a lot of, maybe let's call it the, uh, the systematic racism that exists in Israeli society. I wouldn't or, say systematic racism that exists in Israel. I just, I don't, want, I, I don't think it's a systematic racism here in Israel. But there is some problem with some people that think and their head is with the racism issue. And, uh, but I don't think that there is a systematic, systematic racism here in Israel. Can you tell us about the, um, the history of the community, the origins of the community in Ethiopia? 
I think a lot of people probably wouldn't be familiar with this. Uh, how far back does it go? Um, you know, what are the origins of the community there? I know there's some myths and legends, and there's probably some history. And, and uh, where where does it uh, diverge? So, what, what's the history of the community? Yeah, so, in Ethiopia? so the most um, the story that all the people know about the Ethiopian Jews and how they arrived from Israel to Ethiopia, it's the story of uh, King Solomon and right. Queen Sheba. King Solomon, as uh, everyone know, was the wisest man on earth, and all the kings and the queens in his time wanted to come and have advice and learn from him. Queen Sheba uh, was the queen of the area that we know today, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Yemen, Egypt, uh, all this area used to call Kush, and she was the queen of that area. And she also heard about King Solomon. She came here, they fell in love, and they brought a son, Menelik I. Menelik came here to visit his dad, and uh, after a few months, his father, King Solomon, told him, that he had to go back to Ethiopia, to Kush. But King Solomon didn't send his son alone. He sent thousands of people back with him to Ethiopia. And some believe that the Ethiopian Jews came out from the thousands of people that went back with Menelik uh, back to Ethiopia. But the version that we believe, the Ethiopian Jews, uh, it's the version that speak about after the destruction of the first temple, when King Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered this area. We had the tribes of Israel here. One tribe decided to escape to the south, to Egypt. And I don't know how much you are familiar with the Nile River. Yeah. Uh, so we have the blue Nile River and we have the white Nile River. Right. The blue start in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. The white start in Sudan. So this tribe walked through the blue Nile River until they ended up in Ethiopia. And um, so we believe to the second version, the version that speak about the tribe of Dan, because we, be, we belong to the tribe of Dan, and the tribe that walked through the Blue Nil River until they ended up in Ethiopia. I know there's a story of, uh, not a story, I mean, a historical record also of uh, Jewish military legions on the Isle of Elephantine in the Nile, and uh, right, they just kind of disappeared. Right. South Egypt. In South Egypt one time. So we know there's been a Jewish presence uh, in Egypt, south of Egypt, in that kind of whole area, right, for, for thousands of years. Um, so, so this community and the history of the community goes back a really long time. Yeah, yeah, more than 2,500 wow. years, long, long time. When was, um, so for, from the, the little bit I've read about the history of the community, um, they were kind of cut off, right? You guys were kind of cut off there for a long time from the rest of the, the Jewish world as far as, you know, you know, things that happened later on as far as the introduction of rabbinic Judaism or like the True. Mishnah and the Talmud. True. So what did uh, Judaism, Versia, Ethiopia, version Ethiopia look like, um, you know, at least throughout history? So as you said, uh, we were isolated for many, many years. I think we were the only community, the Jewish community, that didn't have any relationship to any other Jewish community in the world. Wow. Therefore, we thought that we are the only Jews left in the world, and if we will not keep Judaism, Judaism will disappear. That's and That's in the history of the Ethiopian Jews, we kept Judaism sometimes with our life, because I don't know if you know, but in the 4th century, Christianity came to yeah. Ethiopia. And there was a lot of queens and kings that wanted to convert the Ethiopian Jewish community into Christianity, but my people really protect their Jewish identity sometimes with their life. And um, 
by the way, this is the reason why we don't have the oral Torah, because the oral Torah came a few hundred years after the destruction of the first temple. Right. And we left in the destruction of the first temple, and we didn't have no relationship to any other Jewish community, and therefore no one told us that there is one more Torah, the oral Torah. So I guess that Ethiopian Jews, if you want to see how Jews kept Judaism in the first temple, you just need to watch the Ethiopian Jews because we kept Judaism the way it looks like wow. in the first temple. Are, are, are the leaders or the, the kind of the traditional people of the community still maintaining those traditions? Yeah, uh, we have our spiritual leaders, the Kesim. And, um, you know, the songs and how we pray, it's uh, very familiar to what had been happened during the time of uh, the first temple. That's amazing. And we'd love to uh, get some, if you have like videos, and we can put them on the website. Sure, sure. For video our, and music. Yeah, video and music, and we can share them sure. on the show notes of the website so, for people to, to go in and see. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting, like, just from, just from like a cultural perspective, so there's this community that's going on a trajectory of time over thousands of years. Um, but modernity starts to happen in the world and transportation networks are built and people are coming and going from Africa to the Middle East over I mean, the, the history of African and Middle Eastern uh, trade relationships, culture relationships, empire building. Colonial, I mean, I'm not even going to colonialism. I mean, even before then, uh, before European colonialism. When does it start to become apparent to the Ethiopian Jewish community living in Ethiopia that there is a broader Jewish world that exists outside of their own communities? Well, it started uh, in the late 19th century. The first Ethiopian Jew that came here to Jerusalem, uh, that happened in 1855. And then um, in the end of 19th century, a guy by the name of Joseph Alevi guy from Paris, a Jewish guy, came to do some research about the Ethiopian Jews. And he came and he discovered that there is Jews in Ethiopia. And he was the one that took this information back to Europe, telling the Jewish communities there are Jews in Ethiopia. So like basically this guy comes to Ethiopia and he's sitting down with Jews in Ethiopia, and this turns into a complete and total mind blow for both sides. Like, how he's sitting there they, like, whoa, there's Jews, and the Ethiopian Jews are like, whoa, there are Jews that aren't Ethiopian Jews. And Isn't, isn't like, there a story that uh, you guys see this probably Ashkenazi Jew, and you're like, oh, they're white Jews? <laughs> yeah, so, so, so one of the things that uh, when uh, Ethiopian Jews used to live in two main cities or areas. One is Gondar, and the other one is Tigray. My family originally from Tigray. And when this guy came to that's Tigray... That's in the, nor- the north, sorry, the yeah, north of the country? Yeah, near the border of Eritrea. What, okay. kind, what kind of uh, geographic terrain is it? Is it, is it plains? Is it mountains? What, kind of, what are we talking uh, about? It's more familiar to the south of Israel. Okay. So this guy is coming and he's smoking a pipe. And uh, the Jews from Ethiopia, from my area, asking him, how can you come a Jew when you're smoking and you hurt your body. It's like, you, you can't do that. Smoking is, was, is not common? Or it was not time? common no. in, the, in, in the late 19th century. It was not common. Uh, and uh, to see him smoke and hurting his body was something that was very surprising for the Ethiopian Jews because you have to protect. 
your soul and body. And of course, to see a white man who claimed that he is Jew was a surprise, <laughs> you know? Um, That's awesome. What, what historically did, you know, Jews in different kinds of uh, places where they lived had to have certain professions or tended to have certain professions, right? In some places, you know, uh, they were farmers. In other places, they were warriors. In other places, they, were, they dealt with money. Um, did the Jews of Ethiopia historically have professions that they were more they, that they were more involved in and professions yeah. that they weren't? Yeah, so first, of course, uh, being farmers, agriculture, building weapons. Ethiopian Jews were very well-known people that uh, building guns and, and things like that, doing embroidery work. All those types of work was unique to the Ethiopian Jews. Hmm, interesting. So they knew how to like make guns? and Yeah, yeah. I never well, knew that. Yeah, they, they were making guns. Wow. So somebody gave like knowledge to the community. Was it because they were working with metal? or? I, I, I don't know when it started and how it became uh, their professionals, but yeah, most of the people, when they wanted to buy guns, knives, whatever, they were going to the Ethiopian Jewish community to buy them for. That's interesting. I know yeah. um, I, I've read a few articles here and there um, that uh, maybe the 1400s, 1500s, there were kind of waves of uh, forced conversions, you know, Christianity, Islam, whatever, that also swept through uh, Ethiopia. I, I think I even read one time that there was, you know, a, a king or a queen who converted to Judaism, then a lot of people converted to Judaism. Have you heard this? In Ethiopia? Yeah. Well, uh, she, uh, she, was a, uh, she was Jewish from the beginning. Uh, her yeah. name was Judith. She belongs to the Gidonim family. Okay. And uh, I, I don't know if it's true, but we need to check that. But uh, the first time that Jewish community really controlled a country outside of Israel was in Ethiopia because we controlled Ethiopia for about maybe... For years. Yeah, it wasn't long, right? But there was... Yeah, but uh, I guess it, if we check that, if we check in the history of Jews all over the world, I don't, I don't remember another Jewish community that right. controlled a country for 40 years. Do you have any idea how big the community might have been at one time or another? Well, uh, I think that we're speaking about during that time when we were really strong and we controlled the continent or the country of Ethiopia, I believe that we're speaking about maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe 800, 900, but we were big. But then uh, over time, um, from my understanding, did, did uh, the community come to be kind of maybe oppressed by uh, the Christian rulers? Or what were the relations like with... Um, so it's changed you know, from a king to king. Yeah. By the way, many people know us after the name of Falasha. Yeah. So Falasha is a nickname that um, the non-Jews used to call us in Ethiopia. Falasha means uh, a stranger, someone uh, who is not in his land. And this is how the Christians and the Muslims called us. We called ourselves Better Israel, the house of Israel, because we always wanted to remind ourselves that we belong to Am Israel. And Falasha means also someone who is not able to have a land because there was a, a law that brought up uh, by one of the kings that if you don't want to convert, then you will not be able to have a land. So, Falasha. Sounds uh, like a similar story to many of the it's Jewish true, diasporas. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's the parallels between the different narratives that go on in different Jewish communities around the world are very, very similar. Um, Did, uh, was there a language, uh, a traditional language spoken other than what was spoken around uh, 
you know, Amharic or, or Tigray or... Yeah, it? so uh, our spiritual leaders, they don't speak that language, but there was an ancient language called Ge'ez, and she's not existing anymore. Uh, but our spiritual leaders, they when they pray, they pray in that language. Hmm. Um, What's it similar to? What's it connected to? Do you know? Uh, it's from, uh, from the Semite family uh, of languages. Also, all the, all the other languages in Ethiopia, for example, uh, Tigrinya or Amharit, they are very familiar and close to the Hebrew and the Arabic. Yeah, they're they Semitic are, languages, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Semitic languages. And, um, but for your, uh, for your questions, then the Giz. That's so what so the, nobody speaks it? Nobody. But are there still people who can read it and are they pray um, in it? Uh, so the spiritual leaders, the yeah. Kesim, they are the ones that pray in that language. Mm. Some people uh, in Israel are starting to learn and we're starting to hear about the unbelievable story of the, the journey, uh, the exodus really of uh, the Ethiopian Jewish community to Israel. And uh, we know your family was uh, one of the first to do it and then your brother um, should be internationally famous now. Uh, Shalom, you know, right? Yeah. But uh, should, the story is really famous. So we'd love to hear about this story. Uh, how did your family... Um, Wait, if, 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 if we could just go back one second. Yeah, please. Because there's, I want to try to fill in the context because I think that there's, you know, people in Israel and people around the world that are familiar with Ethiopian Israeli community understand that Ethiopians came to the state of Israel at a certain time and, and they understand that there's, you know, a certain kind of, I don't want to say romantic version of what happened because it's not that way, but there's, there's knowledge of the fact that there were like operations to bring Ethiopian Jews to Israel. But I don't think a lot of people understand why there was a need to leave at that time. That the context of what's going on in Africa in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. You know, why did Jews need to or yeah, feel point. the need at that time to leave in en masse? Was it out of you know, a feeling of longing and wanting to return? Or were there external uh, factors that were causing the community to feel in danger and, and needing to leave? So... For that answer, I would have to go back to the late 19th century because the first time that Ethiopian Jews really tried to fulfill that dream to return back home to Zion was in 1862. We had a spiritual uh, leader uh, that had a vision that it's about time that he need to gather all the community and start to walk to Israel. Unfortunately, he didn't came up and a lot of people died on that journey. But it was in 1862. Wow. In 1862, just to remind the viewers, the great Herzl was only two years old. Right. So Zionism is in Ethiopian Jews even before Herzl. But was there anyone with a beard like Herzl? <laughs> <laughs> well, the case was with a beard. Okay, okay. Yeah. Got to um, So it, it started then. And then um, the existence of the, the State of Israel in 1948. And um, in, in Israel, we have a special law, the law of return, a law from 1952. So we knew that, okay, there is a country, there is Israel. and um, So the news had made it by that time? Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the 20th century, we had a relationship, some kind of relationship with the State of Israel. Uh, we had... Right. Uh, Yona Bugale, who is like a heretic to the Ethiopian Jews, he was the one that was um, showing the interest of the Ethiopian Jews here in Israel. Right. Uh, even yeah, there's 
lots of uh, fanfare and pictures and, and documentation around the, Ethio- the emperor of Ethiopia, Hele Selesi's visit to Jerusalem. I think it was in the 1930s. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, he, he had a lot of problems with the Italians, so he right. escaped here. And he had some houses and properties in Jerusalem, his family, until those days. But it doesn't have to do nothing with Emperor Haile Selassie because we had our own leaders that uh, came and spoke with some people here to show the interest of the Ethiopian Jews and that they want to fulfill the dream of coming back to Zion. So in 1952, we had the law of return, which means that if you are a Jew, no matter where you are, you can come and be a citizen in Israel. Unfortunately, it took 23 years so that this law will apply on the Ethiopian Jews. Do you know why? Yeah, we know why, because um, there was a lot of problems with the Rabbanites, because until 1973, there was no chief rabbi here in the Rabbanut that announced that Ethiopian Jews are Jews. So, so the... The chief Jewish authorities, uh, the official Jewish authorities in Israel, didn't want to recognize the community as yeah. Jewish. Until 1973, oh. when we had um, the Sfaradi chief rabbi, Rabbi Ovadi Yosef. Yeah. And he was the first one that announced that Ethiopian Jews are Jews, and we have to do everything in our power in order to bring them from Ethiopia to Israel. In 1975, the Ashkenaz chief rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Goren, also announced that Ethiopian Jews are Jews. Now, when you have two chief rabbis, one Ashkenazi, one Sephardi, here in Israel, claiming that the Ethiopian Jews are Jews, it means that the government of Yitzhak Rabin in 1975 have to apply the law of return on the Ethiopian Jews. But still, the Ethiopian Jews didn't come in 1975. They didn't come in 1976. By the way, there was um, a decision in the UN in 1975 that compare Zionism to racism. Right. And when the Jewish community in America heard that, they started to push a lot of pressure on the Israeli government uh, to bring the Ethiopian Jews. Because if the world is claiming that Zionism is racism, then we will bring our brothers and sisters from Ethiopia to Israel. And uh, it's only in 1977 when... um, the late Prime Minister Menachem Begin and the Likud party won the election, that things started to move. In 1977, I, I don't know if you know, but there was um, a deal between Mangisto Haile Mariam, the dictator from Ethiopia, and Menachem Begin. There was a deal that we call it the arm deal. The arm deal is a deal that uh, Ethiopia, Israel, is willing to give. Mangisto Haile Mariam, uh, weapon and advice. Uh, you have to know at that time, there was a lot of groups that started to rebel against Mangisto Haile Mariam regime. One of the groups is the TPLF, Tigray People Liberation Front. And uh, Mangisto Haile Mariam found himself in trouble. Just like civil war, right? Uh, it started, yeah. yeah. It started. Um, and then the government of Israel told him that they will give him weapon and advice. And in return, all he will have to do is to let some thousands of Ethiopian Jews to leave the country. Why wouldn't he have wanted to let people leave? I think that uh, he believed that if he will give this community in Ethiopia to leave, it will raise awareness of other communities in Ethiopia to ask to leave as well. Because everyone wanted to leave. 
during the time of Mangisto Haile Mariam, life in Ethiopia was not easy. It was, um, Ethiopia became a communist country. She followed after the Soviet Union. And um, he, he, he put the red terror in Ethiopia. And so life was not easy uh, that time. Was life especially not easy for the Jewish community or was it just bad for everyone? It, it was bad for everyone. Bad for everyone. So when this deal came out, uh, he agreed and um, the state of Israel started to send weapon and advice and Mossad agent. And when, when those Mossad agents came to Ethiopia, they came to a big country in Africa. They don't know the language. They don't speak the... the it's, it's huge. I don't think we realize how big Ethiopia is. Uh, very big. One, a, of, one of the biggest countries in Africa, for I mean, sure. It's, it's what, like 150 million people, right? Uh, well, today it's 120 million. It's insane. Uh, um, uh, in, in the 70s, we had about 80 million. So when, when those Mossad agents came in uh, 1977, they don't speak the language. They don't know exactly where are the Jews living. And one of the people that they were speaking with was my late brother, Fred Aklum. My brother was a teacher, ordered the organization, opened school for the Ethiopian Jews uh, in the 60s to, pre- to prepare them for the day that, will, that they will come to Israel. Interesting. So the Israeli government was aware and was even, or, or is not exactly the government, but it's a kind of an Israeli institution, was already there and trying to connect and educate and Yeah, prepare. they were providing help for the Ethiopian Jewish community in, in the second half of the 20th century. So my brother was a teacher in one of the schools of Ort. So he spoke Hebrew? He's, uh, well, not or a English. good Hebrew, but he, he spoke very well English, English. And this is how we communicate with the Mossad agent. And the Mossad people told him, listen, we want you to bring... 120 Ethiopian Jews from the Gondar area. Now, uh, in the 70s, by bus from Gondar to the capital city, Addis Ababa, we're speaking about three days. Wow. Uh, to organize them, to find them, to bring them. Uh, and he was the one that brought 100, 120 Ethiopian Jews from Gondar to Addis Ababa. And from Addis Ababa, in 1977, for the first time, legally, Ethiopian Jews are arriving to Israel. On a plane. On a plane. And this is your family was involved in this? No, no. My family were not involved yet. We didn't came. Okay. My brother was the one but that brought them. your brother was there? Because my family are in Tigray. He brought the Jews from the Gondar area because okay. he was teaching there. Um, so, unfortunately, at that time, we had a foreign minister, Moshe Dayan. And uh, this deal was a secret deal. And Moshe Dayan had a press conference in Geneva. And um, he spoke freely about this deal. He told the world that there Oops. is a deal. Yeah. <laughs> that there is a deal between Ethiopia and Israel. And um, when the dictator from Ethiopia heard about that, he canceled the deal. He asked all the Mossad agents to leave immediately. And he started to chase after all the Ethiopian Jews activists that took part in this deal. One of them is my brother. So my brother became a wanted man in his own country. Wow. So, and to be a wanted man Times. in Ethiopia in the 70s, it means that if they will catch you, you're a dead man. So my brother didn't have any other option, and the only option he had was to escape to the closest country, Sudan. How old is he during this time? 30 years old. Does he have a family? You have, uh, you have a son and uh, a wife. Okay. And, um, and Sudan... Su- Sudan's also not a friendly country. Right? Not a friendly country. I wouldn't say you would go and say, I'm a Jewish man in Sudan. Right. But one thing about religion is that you can hide your identity as Jew. 
but the problem was uh, the distance between Gondar to Sudan. We're speaking about more than 300 miles walking. 300 miles, about 500 kilometers. Something like that. Uh, and it's a desert area. So it's, it's tough walking. It's uh, very, very tough. Wow. Very, how, very tough. How long it's, does such a journey take? To my brother, it took about a month to do it. Uh, and when he arrived to um, Sudan, he arrived to the capital city, Khartoum. And the only thing that he had on him that worth something was his wedding ring and a book with some addresses of some Mossad agent that he worked with a few months before wow. in Ethiopia. He decided to sell the wedding ring. He went to the, you earn some Sudanese lira. And uh, with the money that he earned, he went to the main post office in Khartoum, Sudan, and he sent letters to his contacts telling them, it's me, Ferede Aklum, I'm in Khartoum, Sudan, please send me a ticket. Now, I will not go into details of how this letter arrived uh, finally to the table of the Prime Minister Menachem Begin. They decided, instead of sending him a ticket, to send him a young Mossad agent, Danny Limor, to save him from Sudan. And, um, so, hey, he, this is a guy, I mean, he's 30, he's probably healthy. Yeah, yeah. And it took him, how long did you say? To a walk? month. A month, okay. So, through the desert, yeah. he's wanted by yeah. a dictatorship. Right, a military dictatorship, so he's probably hiding. Yeah, right. He's scared for his life, like every second of it. Mm-hmm. And so that, so this is crazy. Is he going mostly at night? Is he like getting smuggled? Do you know? Do you know like well, how, well, the, uh, how he makes this journey? Yeah. So um, the family of his wife really helped him and uh, took him from the beginning in Ethiopia. You know, hiding him from village to village, uh, and then uh, with some amount of money, they took a guy that will walk with him until the border of Sudan. You had to pay a lot of money. Smugglers. Uh, yeah, smugglers yeah. Uh, that will, you know, get you into Sudan. So uh, it was very tough, very, very tough. But remember, it's, one, it's only one person. Think about what will become after when we're speaking about hundreds of people that have yeah, to do I'm, this journey. I'm trying to think of it. It's, and it's not just hundreds of people. It's families. It's, it's young families, children. It's young elderly, people, children, babies, babies right, adults. People. Yeah. Um, so for him, I guess that uh, he, he was alone by himself. So in that terms, it was even a little bit easy because sure. it's only you. Right. And you are 30, you're healthy, even though it's tough, you know, it's sure. desert and, and, and you're really afraid of your life. Um, so how long does it take for uh, this Mossad agent uh, to find him in Khartoum? It took him about uh, maybe three days okay. to find him in Khartoum. I will uh, not go into details how he found him, uh, but... Um, Classified stuff still? No, it's not. Uh, if it's a good story, you can share. Well, well you know, um, so this Mossad agent really uh, walked through the neighborhood of refugees in Khartoum, Sudan. So th- are there a lot of Ethiopian refugees not, in not Sudan? O- yeah, well, a lot of Ethiopians, not only Ethiopians, people from different countries in the area come in to find themselves uh, a better future work and things like that. And um, so he was asking, and they had a picture of him, asking if they saw this guy. This guy. Um, so one day, another guy told him, what are you looking for? So then he knew that this guy knows him. So he said, if you... If you know him, tell him that I'm waiting for him in this hotel every evening, every evening from 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, you should come visit me. I have a message for him from his family. And the next day, my brother came to the hotel. He didn't speak. He just 
sat down in the restaurant and uh, reading a newspaper. And um, the other day, he came again, and um, he saw the white. Uh, there was not a lot of white people at that time in Sudan. He saw uh, Danny Limore, and he decided not to speak with him, so he went back to the street. And then Danny Limore followed after him and told him, knock on his shoulder and told him, it's me, I'm the ticket you order. <laughs> and, um, you know, my brother was still afraid. He didn't know exactly if this is the guy. So he was afraid and he didn't speak immediately. You know, he wanted to ask some questions sure. and things like that. But then uh, they understand, uh, they underst- he understood that this guy came to save him. And um, from that day on, what we call the journey of the Ethiopian Jews from Ethiopia to Sudan started because my brother realized and understood that um, if he made it, he walked and escaped from Ethiopia to Sudan. And if, if he made it, maybe, maybe there is a way to fulfill the dream, not only to himself alone, but to all Ethiopian Jews after more than 2,500 years, if they can only come to Sudan, then uh, what, what my brother did was... Um, he did a pilot on his own family. He wanted to see if young people can come. So he sent someone uh, in Sudan, a Muslim guy that used to live in the same village that we lived in uh, Ethiopia. Of course, at that time, um, the Mossad agent gave him money and things that he needed. Uh, so he gave some money to the Muslim guy to return to Indobaguna, which is our village. When you say village, what, what does that mean in- 1970s Ethiopia, like how big is a village? Well, it's not that big. In the Baguna, it's, it's more than a village. It's like a small city. Okay. But a village will be like 40 families, something okay. like that. It's, it's not that big. So, so this Muslim guy coming back to Indobaguna and uh, speaking... Because Ferretti is like scared to go back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, a wanted yeah. man. He's so not, he's not coming he's back one, He's not Ethiopia. coming back. Yeah. He's not coming back. So he's sending this Muslim guy to tell uh, the mother, our mother, to bring two of his children, two of her children. Of her children, your, your, your siblings. My brothers, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm trying to understand when someone is coming from a different country telling her you should send yeah, right? another two children. And she's Hi, not I'm sure. a stranger. There's and, a war going on. I'm a, I'm a strange kids. Muslim and, guy. And, your husband's wanted. Yeah, and, Send and, your kids with me. And 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 uh, we, the family, we didn't knew exactly what happened to Ferreira. We didn't heard from him. Uh, like, we were no, sure there's no communication. There's no communication. Time. We were sure that maybe he passed away. Maybe he is in jail. We don't know exactly where he is. And this guy brought a, a news because my my brother sent a passport picture with him. So that um, it was, it will be a proof that my brother is in Sudan. And when she saw that picture, she agreed to send another two children back with him to Sudan. And when this group arrived, because that was the pilot, when this group arrived to Sudan, my brother did a group picture of him and the other two to send back to our family as a proof that they made it, and now it's the time of the rest of the family to come. Wow. Talk about a leap of faith. I mean, can you imagine putting your kids with some stranger that you don't know and being like, all right, you're going to go for a walk. It's going to be 450 miles, but like through like some serious terrain, through some desert, you might get robbed, murdered, eaten, raped. Like, Yeah. It, all wow. the, Way to stay positive, dude. I'm just saying, like, that's... that's it's insane. 
Uh, when yeah. I, I how, have to how old were your siblings? The ones that went to one was uh, twelve, another one was sixteen. The kids, yeah, kids, young, young kids. Wow, young kids. Uh, yeah, I have, I still have that uh, photo of them reunite with uh, our uh, brother Ferede in Sudan. They're here in Israel now. These guys. Yeah, uh, one went back to Ethiopia to do. One became the young one. The twelve years old became. The first Ethiopian officer in the IDF. Wow. He, he was a paratrooper in 1986. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, but they're still here. And 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 when that uh, pilot uh, became a successful, my brother started to send letters to all the Jewish villages, not only in Tigray, but in Gonder, in uh, Wolgait, all these areas that Jews used to live. How many villages them, are we talking about? Wow, 100, 100, 100, 100 of And everyone's villages. like 40 families, 50 families. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And when that rumor starts that um, there is a way to fulfill that dream, to be in Zion, thousands of Ethiopian Jews started this journey. From 1979 until 1984, 20,000 Ethiopian Jews left their villages, their properties, their life, going to the unknown because... No one promised them that in the end they will make it to Jerusalem. They just saw an opportunity. And when that opportunity came... 20,000. 20,000 from 1979 until 1984. And the Ethiopian government is forbidding people to leave? Of course. So this is all has to be completely legal? Yeah, illegal, of course. And there's soldiers? Soldiers, checkpoint. um, You had to pay a lot of money and you had to... Really, as you mentioned before, walk at night so that people will not see you. It was not easy. And, and we're doing that with families, with adults, right. with babies. For example, I was six months old when my family started the journey. Now, think about adults in the age of 80, sure. 60, 70 that had to do a journey of more than 300 miles. In our village, we had an old man. He was um, 82 years old. So his family told him, listen, don't leave, stay here, you will not make it. This old man told his family, I'd rather die on my way to Jerusalem, but I will not stay here. Wow. And he, he passed away on, on, on the way. Out of the 20,000, 4,000 Ethiopian Jews didn't make it and died on the way. That's mind-blowing. And, and when, when Ethiopian Jews already arrived to Sudan, because we're speaking about huge numbers, they put them in... Um, Refugee camps, UN refugee camps. And in those refugee camps, uh, we Ethiopian Jews call it the Holocaust of the Ethiopian Jews. Wow. Because every day, between 10 to 20 people died. Died because of uh, the food that they gave them in the refugee camps, disease in the refugee camps. Many Ethiopian Jewish women were raped by Sudanese soldiers. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people here in Israel, and Jewish people all over the world don't know how much the Ethiopian Jews had to sacrifice in order to return back home to Zion. Because No, we don't hear this. Story. No, because I think people think like, okay, there was just like these miftzaim, these operations. People got on airplanes, the Mossad organized it, and like yeah. they landed yeah, you, and you kissed the ground right. and it was all happy. You only hear the story yeah. of what you know the Mossad or what the army did or what the Navy did. You don't hear what yeah, happened and this is exactly ground. what we are trying to change. We're trying to change... The narrative, because, for example, uh, when I was a kid, I grew up knowing those lovely operation of the state of country of the state of Israel. You know, Operation Moses, Operation Solomon. This is how we grow up, and, and and it's a great thing that the government did, but no one told us about 
what our parents had to do in order to come here. Um, you know, my father, when he came here, he was 60 years old, which means all his life he's living in Ethiopia. He was a very wealthy man, a very successful man. He was a judge, and he had to give up everything over one day because there is no time um, to plan and do things. You know, you wake up in the morning, someone telling you, in this night we're walking, we're we'll going. Never. It's now or never. You don't have time to sell uh, your house, your properties. So you leave everything behind. Not only that, you're walking really to the unknown. You know, and uh, you're taking your children with you. I'm, I'm six months old. And uh, the, it's, it's, it's a tough, tough, tough journey. And many people died on this way. Uh, just to fulfill that dream. And we're trying to change that narrative, the saving narrative, because we grew up knowing that the, the state of Israel saved us from Ethiopia, which is true. They did amazing job, uh, the Navy, the Mossad, uh, and, 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 and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing they did, and, and I'm really thankful for that. But at the same time, they forgot to tell us what our parents did. You know, what our parents did something. They are the real heroes, if you ask me. They are the real heroes. Um, and, and we are trying to change the narrative and to tell um, first to our community, to our children, to our young generation, to look to their parents and to see them as heroes. You know, because they are real heroes. They are the reason why we yeah. are here. It sounds you know? like it. I mean, it, you, you, you know, you kind of hear about these... Um the, like the people who came in the 50s from uh, the Holocaust, right? Yeah. And who came from Europe and they didn't talk, you know, yeah. because they suffered so much. And there's, you know, it was kind of a generation where you, okay, I went through it. It's in the past. I'm going to get on with my life. And they kind of just put their heads down and worked and built families. And a lot of this stuff came out, you know, a generation later, you know, with the Eichmann trial and this. And, um, you know, there was kind of also a shame in the early years of like, oh, they were victims, they were this. First of all, did the, the older generation, the, the people who were adults when they came, or maybe even older teenagers who, who remember the story and who remember the hardships, did they ever talk about it? So, uh, like, Did you yeah. grow up hearing these stories? Yeah, so you, you, you mentioned um, the Holocaust survivor, that it took them a generation or right. even more to start to speak about what happened in World War II. Same thing with the Ethiopian Jews that experienced the journey from Sudan. Um, when I was a kid, we, we never heard about the journey from our parents. Um, it, it took maybe 20 years uh, after that they started to speak and tell their stories because they knew that if they will not tell, tell the story, this story will go with them to the grave. So it's, uh, it's only 20 years after that they start to speak about their experience, about what happened to them, why, and what it, you know, what it took from them as, as people that wanted just to fulfill a dream. And uh, when we heard that for the first time, we realized that the stories that we grew up knowing are half stories. Yeah. You know? And now we know the full story. And this is, this is also why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because those people uh, that did whatever they can to fulfill that dream and uh, to be here, their stories should be out. 
And, uh, and for those 4,000 Ethiopian Jews that didn't make it and died on the way, their stories should be out. Absolutely. So thousands of people, thousands of Jews are making their way to Sudan, right? And you have this harrowing, you know, dramatic um, journey, right, that takes at least a month. Yeah. Right? And people are dying along the way. Uh, you finally get to Sudan, and there's the refugee camps. But that's not the end of the story, I mean, right? Yeah, that's, that's not the end. Um, uh, so if we will go back to the story of my family, we, we were among the first. So we were kind of a small group that came, and we, we didn't experience the refugee camps. Uh, we went to the capital city, to Khartoum, and my brother and the other, another Mossad agent, Danny Limor, they rent houses for us. And while we were there, they were working on uh, fake passport, fake documents for us to leave from Sudan to Greece as workers or something like that. And from Greece, they brought us here. So they were, they were going to disguise your identity and make you Sudani? Uh, not a Sudani, an ref- Ethiopian, Ethiopian refugee, refugee. Ethiopian refugee that uh, have a work in Greece. In Greece. And... Uh, and you so actually went to Greece before we, you came? We, yeah, we went to Greece, and uh, I mean, we were only in the airport. Of course. Uh, I mean, there's no direct flights from Sudan to... No, no, There no. is no, yeah, there is no. So we, we, we flew from Sudan to Greece, and from Greece, they brought us here to Israel. Uh, but when thousands of people came, they were in the refugee camps. And uh, it started to be a big problem for my brother and from... And for Danny Limor to rent houses for thousands of people in Sudan, that right. cannot work. Sure. So they find uh, this idea of um, the fake uh, Red Sea diving resort, yeah, which is a hotel that was supposed to bring tourists from Europe to do diving in the Red Sea. In Sudan. In Sudan. In Sudan. Well, it's in on Sudan. the Red Sea. There's the yeah. There's a there's a coast it's in the Red Sea. Yeah. There. yeah. Where is it located on the coast, if somebody wants to... Yeah, we're looking at a map here on the computer. The distances are crazy, because it's like, yeah. if you're sitting in America and you're listening to uh, this, and you look online, it's like, okay, what's 400 miles? That's like a you know, six-hour drive. 300 miles. Something like that. Tough terrain. You go through a couple of hours. This is like... It's like, it, from, no, uh, uh, it's like uh, the distance between uh, Toronto and Montreal. Yeah. It's like doing Shavili Israel. Sure. Which is takes over a month, right? If you're a good hiker, it takes over a month. If you're a good hiker, if you're a good yeah. hiker, and, and, you, have and food, you don't, you don't, you have food. Food. And you don't come with young people and yeah. adults, and you're that, not, you know. you know, you're not running for your life and yeah. uh, you yeah. know, getting robbed and yeah. killed on right. the way, right? This is it's it's insane. So no. like they have to, so they're going from Ethiopia. They're all coming to Sudan. Yeah, they're going on the same path to get to this diving resort. Or they're they, taking they, different no, ways they, to get No, they're first going to the refugee camps. And, um, and that's in Khartoum? How far is the diving that's resort? That's down south uh, Sudan. Um, How far is the resort from Khartoum? Wow, that's, um, that's a long, 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 long way. It's, uh, it's, it's also a few hundred miles. And, uh, but this is the only option they had if they want to bring as soon as they can, as much more people as they can uh, to Israel. No. So they, they had this idea. What year, what year is this now? We're speaking about 1981. 81. So, so yeah. for those listeners, right, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I really hope they made the connection on their own, but, uh, and we're going to get to this in a second, this became a major Hollywood movie. True. That we're going to talk about in a second, but I want to hear the real story before we talk about the Hollywood movie. Yeah, so, um, so 
what they did, uh, my brother and uh, Danny Moore, is they found a way to take out from uh, the refugee camps Ethiopian Jews and by car to bring them to the fake diving resort. So the Mossad is setting up um, this diving resort, right? Is it like the movie? Yeah, it's... Like as far I mean, as they, what's they, happening they, they the diving resort? Yeah, they uh, rent this... Uh, uh, this uh, diving resort from the government from of the, Sudan. Right, from the Ministry the, of Tourism, right? From the Ministry of Tourism. They paid money. They did brochure. They had uh, tourists coming during the day uh, to do diving resorts. They, you know, it was a real business. <laughs> a real, real business. Um, which, which, which one it, is... It, uh, it was the only time that the Mossad, when they had an operation that... They didn't take money from the government. They brought money to the government, <laughs> you know, because yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of tourists came to do to do diving resort. It was like a big thing, and um, and in the night they were smuggling Ethiopian so Jews. So your brother is in Khartoum. My brother was in Khartoum. And how is um, he getting people? How is he getting people to this hundreds of miles away diving resort? Okay, so Danny Limore had a, a friend in the UN in the refugee camps, and he was uh, telling him, give me the names and I will take them out. And uh, this is exactly what they did. They had cars, you know, Land Rovers, to take the refugees from the refugee camps to uh, the diving resort. And this is what they did. They paid a lot of money to soldiers around uh, in order to bring the Ethiopian Jews to the Red Sea Diving Resort. At that time, my brother was um, also, uh, his identity was very well known to the Sudanese authority. And he was not able to be part of this. So at that time, he already left back to Israel. So your brother had to flee now Sudan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he, was, he became the, a wanted man also in Sudan. Why not? Um, so, so what they were doing was also very much under the nose of the Sudanese government. Yeah, I mean, that was a big risk, uh, very big risk, because the Sudanese authority didn't know exactly what happening there. They knew that it's a diving resort, and this is all they knew. Uh, in, the, in the movie, and, and Benny didn't like the movie, did you? I liked the movie. It's a good movie. Chris Evans, right? Uh, Captain, <laughs> Captain America is... is uh, a Mossad agent. Um, which one in the movie is Donnie? It's Gilmore? Chris Evans. Oh, he's he's Chris Evans. Yeah. Okay. I just so thought that they could have got his. Yeah. And the actors. one that uh, the it's one that Chris Evans, man, it's Chris come Evans. on, over, dude. It's Captain yeah. America. And the one that uh, played my brother is uh, Michael K. Williams. Yeah, from uh, the Wire, uh, right? The Wire, yeah. yeah. Omar. It's yeah. crazy. So you consulted on this movie? Yeah, uh, I, I got a call from uh, Giddy Ruff, the director of the movie. And he's the guy who made uh, Homeland. Homeland, yeah. Very, very talented guy. And he told me that he wanted me to consulate, uh, to be an image consulate for this movie. I was very happy, you know. It means that I knew that for the first time our story is coming to Hollywood. It was a big, 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 big thing for me, you know. At this um, time, at this, at this time, time, were you already kind of, had you made yourself already an expert on this whole story? Uh, I was... Kind of the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, but I, I, I knew the journey and the story of Sudan, uh, even way before. 
And uh, for me, it was a big thing because to, you know, if I want to change the narrative and Hollywood can be something that can help me do that, that can be a great thing. But when I started to work, one of the main things that I wanted is to bring the story of the Ethiopian Jews. But unfortunately, the Red Sea Diving Resort movie, it's a movie that focuses more on the Mossad people. And uh, it's kind of really didn't put a lot of focus on the journey of the Ethiopian Jews. And, and that, was that frustrating for you? Yeah. I mean, I really wanted the movie to be more focused on the Ethiopian Jews, on the journey, <coughs> on that dream that they had for many, many years. And then you, the, the end result of this movie, it's a movie that tells the story from the Mossad point of view. Uh, all you see is how the Mossad did, what they did. They are the real heroes. And this is exactly what I'm trying to change over the years. I want to change that narrative of, because the Mossad, with all the respect, they did their job. This is their job. They're getting paid in the end of the month for that, even right. though they're they taking a big risk and sure. it's not no, it's easy. It's their job, though. It's their job. Uh, but the real heroes are the Ethiopian Jews. You know, the one that died on the way are the Ethiopian Jews. The one that left everything behind are the Ethiopian Jews. The one that will not able to return to their home are the Ethiopian Jews. And I wanted to take that opportunity with this movie to bring for, uh, to the forefront the story of the Ethiopian Jews. And, and, and uh, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. But, yeah, it was um, kind of a minor But But, but you movie. know, I'm always trying to see in every bad things that um, happen, happening in life, try to see the good. And the good is that this movie, it's really raising the awareness of people to the story of the Ethiopian Jews. Because yeah, when absolutely. someone is watching the movie, the first thing that he wants to do is to learn more about the Ethiopian Jews. So we will go, he will Google Ethiopian Jews. This movie is just teasing him to know more. And this is what I'm, I'm, I'm you know, that's the good thing in that movie. And um, I can tell you all that we will work, and we are working on another movie, this time uh, from the Ethiopian Jewish community point of view. Who's, who's we? Who's working on this? Me and, um, it's, it's the beginning, Yeah. Uh, but me and some good people. It's not Hollywood this time. Oh. <laughs> it's not Hollywood. But maybe you got someone listening in Hollywood. Yeah, they, uh, well, you know, in, in Hollywood, project. if you make a movie on one issue, it will take you another 10 years to do another movie on the same issue. Yeah. This is how it goes. Out of curiosity, are you, are your family's still friendly with Danny Limor? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Danny is a very good friend. He's still uh, doing a lot of things for the Ethiopian, over the years for the Ethiopian Jewish community. It's not only uh, helping bringing them here and fulfilling their dream, is helping them while they are here. Uh, yeah, of course, Danny is a great. Is great he? Man. Did he share with you some of your frustrations about the movie portraying the Mossad uh, perspective and not? Uh, well, in the end, uh, he's a Mossad agent, and it's right. good for him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, he got played by Captain America. Yeah, yeah Chris times. Evans. Uh, Chris so, Evans. Uh, Captain America. Come on, it's Captain Dude, America. It's Captain America. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's interesting. Was there were there things in the movie um, that were not accurate? I mean, you know, Hollywood has to make it. Hollywood has to make it things exciting. Yeah, 
Uh, well, uh, there is few things. Uh, for example, the movie starts with Mossad agent that taking Jews from the Ethiopian Jews' villages. Yeah, right, right, right. He's like that's, sneaking them onto the truck while they're getting that's chased. That's never happened. Right, because, Ethiop- that, was, because that was all it, the Ethiopians themselves. Yeah, Ethiopian Jews came to Sudan and found this Mossad agent there. Oh. The Mossad agent didn't come to, Ethi- to Ethiopia, to their villages, to save them from the villages. That's one. The second thing is that in the movie, we have a CIA agent. Yeah. Right? And uh, that was not true. America was never involved, but it's Hollywood, and they want to sure. put America in the movie. Yeah. But you, you said know. the UN guy was involved. There was a UN guy involved, right? Well, UN is much more something that, yeah, that can happen. Sure. Because UN was the place that, uh, with the refugee camps and all this, but CIA agent was not there. Interesting. What about, like, um, you know, the scene, uh, if I recall, at the end, where they're you know, kind of trying to get the last busload, and they're, you know, the Sudanese soldiers are, are showing up and starting to fire, and you're hiding the the last of the Ethiopian Jews and, and then they have to get on the boats and they're shooting at them. Like, was that, was it that dramatic on a well, regular basis? Well, um, I think that they had some, uh, events familiar to the, to that last scene, uh, that happened to the Mossad agent, uh, because they were working and from time to time, uh, a lot of Sudanese soldiers knew and realized that something happened in there. Something wrong is happening in that mm-hmm. in that area in that uh, fake Red Sea diving resort, and um, uh, I know that they had some event with Sudanese soldiers. Interesting. Did you see the movie Argo? Yeah. So did you see it? Sure. For, excellent movie. Like really one of the best movies. So I, I read the book. Yeah, Ben Affleck actually did a good job as an actor in that movie. Yeah. He directed. He directed. Did he? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a movie. He won. I think he won an Oscar for it. Um, so I read the book by the uh, the CIA agent who, who he portrays, and um, first of all, the book was just absolutely mind blowing. And to hear the whole backstory of how he goes there and he has to set it up, and um, you know the whole scene where the Iranian um, Revolutionary Guards are chasing the plane, the with plane, the and the so that never happened, right? They they get on and they're like sweating bullets, but until you know it crosses into. Uh, but uh, that's one of those things. So I was, that's why I was wondering, like, if, if that scene actually happened, if there was actually, you know, soldiers chasing them as they're, like, scrambling to get on the boats and, you know. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. So, the, so the people are getting on these boats and, and they're going where? Going to Israel. So they're, they're first, they're they're first getting, arriving to Eilat? They're getting on they're, na- they're Navy ships, right? They're coming from that area, They're yeah. getting on Navy ships? They're getting on Bad Galim. Bad Galim, uh, Navy ships, yeah, yeah, of course. And then the Navy ship goes up to, to Elat, yeah, basically. To Elat, yeah, and from Elat. So what happens, uh, I mean, you were a baby, but uh, you seem, you seem to, to be very aware of like, the whole experience. What happens when thousands of um, these Ethiopian Jews are showing up in Elat? What, what's now happening? We're talking about the late 1970s, early 1980s. Yeah. What's going so, on now? Uh, I can tell you my story of, yeah. and what happened... Um, to me, to my family, uh, one of the first cities that accept the Ethiopian Jews was this city, Beersheba, mm. capital of the Negev. And we are living here since... Um, what, what do you mean accept the Jews? Are no, cities I mean, not accepting? No, no. I mean, uh, well, today you will find a lot of cities that will not accept. You know, Today, the municipality have the power to say, no, we are not able to accept them because we don't have enough budget, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough opportunities for them. So today, municipalities can say we don't 
but Except. no, but if you and your family want to move wherever you want to move, you can move. Right? Yeah, we, I mean, you're talking about like if there's an organized uh, group of immigrants coming to be absorbed in a community, they'll say, you know, we want to move to. I don't know, I'm just throwing this out here. Kfal Saba and Kfal Saba will say, we don't have resources to deal with this community right now. And, yeah. And Bel Sheva no, at the uh, time uh, was uh, very uh, open into the, to the idea. Well, um, when you have, uh, immig- you know, people coming from different country, sometimes there is also interest of the government well, where to put them. Okay. For example, if Bel Sheva need more citizens because it's kind of a weak uh, city and she need more help and she need more workers and things like that. Uh, so it's the same, same thing what happened with the Jews from North uh, sure. uh, Africa when they put sure. them in Jerusalem and uh, Dimona and all those places. So we came here and um, one of the biggest mistakes that the government of Israel did was to put the Ethiopian Jews in big cities. Because as I mentioned before, 70% of Ethiopian Jews are farmers. And if you would put them in kibbutz or moshav, you have a win-win situation, which means people that can work in the land and, and create and, money. And know how to work the land. And they will not be a burden to the country. But instead, they put them in big cities. It's funny. They put the, like the North Africans and the Mizrahim in farming communities, and they didn't know how to farm. Right. So. Yeah, so I should have um, done uh, the other way around. So I grew up in a neighborhood that uh, had maybe ninety percent Ethiopian Jews here in Beersheba. Here in Beersheba, not far from here. And when you put a lot of people from low economic status in one neighborhood, because when you are a new immigrant, your economic status are not that good. Sure, and you had to leave everything behind. Yeah, which means you come with nothing. And. Uh, when you put a lot of people from low economic status in one neighborhood, you will eventually create a neighborhood that will have drugs, alcohol, crime, and violence. And this is the neighborhood that I grew up into. And if you don't have tough parents that will show you the limits, you will probably find yourself one day in jail. And uh, our parents, they were so happy to be here, very thankful for being here, because it's... Um, it's in their generation that they fulfill a dream of more than 2,500 years. You know how many Jews died with that dream of being one day in Israel? And to my parents, they were that generation to fulfill that dream. So for them, even though there was a lot of struggles at the beginning here in Israel, a lot of, um, it's not, it was not easy. Sure. Um, it's not easy to be a black man in a country that our vast majority is white. Even though we live among our brothers and sisters, because we are all brothers and sisters uh, here. We are all Jews. But still, it's not easy. But for our parents, with all the struggles, with all the pain, with all the difficulties, they were so happy and thankful to be here. But my generation, it's a different generation. Did your, were your parents, sorry to interrupt, were your parents, um, I'm assuming they didn't know Hebrew? Yeah, they didn't really speak Hebrew. And did they speak English? You said no, 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 no. Your father was a judge, right? Yeah, so but he, he did. He spoke uh, the local language. Mm. and yeah. what, Was he able to acclimate? Was he able to find work? No, my father came in an age that it oh, was... A, uh, yeah. He's already older. Right? He's already older. Uh, it's very hard to start something when you are old enough. 
but my my father was a very important person in my life because he he was a father that really put a lot, put a lot of uh for him education was very important to give education to his kids and this is why he put a lot of effort to bring education to his son Ferede Aklum and to the others but for him it was tough it was very tough here not easy you don't speak the language in Ethiopia he was a very respected man and people look at him and oh wow and all this and here you know so it wasn't it was not easy for him and for my mom and for the for all the all his generation it was not easy but again they were very very happy to be here you you, know, you hear the story of uh, all the waves of immigrants that came here from from the various places and of course some had it easier than others some spoke more hebrew some less some some had english um you know people from western countries tend to be more respected in the eyes of the public i think instinctively you know then you hear the stories of of like doctors coming from russia who then had to be street sweepers right or or all these kind of stories mm-hmm. um was there a a sense in the community among the people who who were maybe more respected uh back in ethiopia that they just kind of lost their standing they lost their pride how does that affect also your generation right who then grew up with this does that affect you uh, how yeah. how does that shape you when you grow up yes yeah, so um one of the things that i grew up with and uh, not only me but a lot of friends of mine is that uh we saw we saw our parents as weak people sometimes we were even embarrassed by them mm. because the way they dress the way they speak they don't speak hebrew we have to go and translate for them when they want to go to that office or to the supermarket so we saw our parents as weak people you know because as a child you want to see your parents as strong that can provide you that can give you uh their economic status was low which means they were not able to provide what we wanted as kids you know new shoes nike and all these things that kids want sure and uh, and therefore we saw them as weak and um another thing that i grew up with was uh identity issues because in one hand uh i'm a proud jewish man i'm a proud israeli but when i was a kid i didn't really like the color of my skin i didn't like myself as a black man did you did you feel discriminated in israel by by the rest of society for well from time to time when i was a kid they called us negro samba and things like that and um i guess the only friends that i have when i was a kid was from my community you know and um so i didn't i was asking god as a kid why did you brought me to this world as a black man if it's not easy to be a black man because it's not and uh so i had identity problems i didn't really knew who i am am i a black man am i an israeli am i a jew who am i i didn't really knew who am i um and it took me a few years to understand uh, who i am and it's happened um not too long ago 10 years ago i did um, a road trip for the first time in my life back to ethiopia and um i saw a beautiful country a really beautiful beautiful country with beautiful nature and beautiful people culture i went back to the village that i was born i saw friends of my family they told me about my dad about my mother 
about the Jewish community that used to live there. These are non-Jewish people. Non-Jewish, right. Muslims and Christian people. And um, from that trip, I really came back a different person. I came back even uh, more proud Jew, a proud Israeli, and uh, I guess first time in my life, a uh, proud black man. Black is beautiful. And when you have all those little identities within you, and you accept them, and you make out of them one identity, you know who you are, and you know you're worth something. And you have that confidence within you. And when you have that confidence within you, it will be very easy for you to navigate in this new society or uh, in the Israeli society. And, and if you want to achieve something, it will be very easy for you because you are proud of who you are, you know who you are, and it's, it's really helping along the way. Wow, that's awesome. This is your personal story. Do you feel others of your generation are also kind of having the same realization, the same taking pride in their identity and their story as Jews, as Israelis, as blacks? Like, do you feel like this is kind of an awakening that's happening in Israel? So I feel that's something starting to happen. And this is why me and many more are doing what we are doing. We are doing, we are trying to bring to the forefront the story of the Ethiopian Jews, not only for the Israeli society, but first for our generation, for the Ethiopian Jews, the young people to understand and to know who they are, who their parents are, to be proud of who they are, to be proud of their culture, of their, culture, of their parents, and to be proud to be black men. And this is something that's starting to happen. You can see today... A lot of young Ethiopian Israelis going back to their original names because when we came here, uh, they changed their names into Israelis' names. Right. Uh, and now you can see a lot of young people that going back to their Ethiopian original names, uh, uh, being more proud to hear, even to hear Ethiopian music, to dance, uh, to eat Ethiopian food. And I, I believe that the more people will accept themselves the Israeli society will accept you as well. Do you, do you feel Israeli society is, is becoming more and more accepting? Yeah, I think that, um, and I'm not, I'm not blaming the Israeli society because they didn't have a chance to know the Ethiopian Jewish community. Unfortunately, uh, Ministry of Education is not teaching the story of Ethiopian Jews in schools, for example. You will not hear uh, the story of our Aliyah in schools. They're barely teaching the story of Mizrahi Jews who were yeah. here decades before. And, and I think that it's a big right. mistake. It's a big mistake because um, I believe that the more people here will know each other, the more we will create a better society, a society that will respect each other. For example, I believe that a lot of people don't know enough about the Jews from Russia or the Jews from um, uh, India. Right. So the more you will know, the more you will accept. And today I know for sure that Israeli society really want to know the story of the Ethiopian Jews. You know, a lot of organizations inviting me to speak and to tell the story because they want to know. And it's about time that people will know not only the story of the Ethiopian Jews, but the stories of all the tribes. Because, and I'm saying that a lot, the main threat or the biggest threat to the state of Israel, it's not Palestinian, it's not Iran, it's ourselves. And, if, and we, we see it, we, we can see it today, what's happening in the society. Yeah. 
Jew, uh, religious, non-religious, uh, black and white, Sephardim, uh, Ashkenazim, gays, lesbian. We see how much problems we have within our society. And the only thing that can bring people together is to educate them about each other. 100%. It, and it definitely does seem it, in, in the past, let's say, 10 years or so, that there's more of a renaissance going on and trying to understand the, the true stories of the different communities that make up this country, um, which is really interesting that it's coming at a time when we're also more polarized than I think we, I can at least remember in terms of our politics, in terms of our opinions, in terms of an us versus them or a or a zero-sum game sort of a mentality between people that need to have their version be the truth. But, but honestly, you know, it's, it's true that, that there is a more of, a, of an attempt these days, regardless of what your community is, to escape the sort of classical romanticized version of what you know, I, I, the official story might be, whether it's this story yeah. of the Ethiopian Aliyah being uh, from the position of the state and the Mossad and valiant Israel rescuing a poor community, or whether it's the Mizrahi story, uh, or, or whether it's the Russian story. And, and this is such a country where, at least in my experience, um, you know, we are a country, you know, one big tribe of Jews, but that's separated into its own little individual tribes, so to speak. And we're very quick to know one another based on the stereotypes that we have of one another. Mm-hmm. So you were saying before, let's like the Russian Jews. It's like, so what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the Russian Jews? It might be, oh, they're not really Jewish or, yeah. you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, drinking a lot or yeah. violence with the kids or something like that. And, and it's like, no, if you stop for a second and see what's going on, it's like there in each one of these countries, or sorry, in each one of these communities, there's a very deep and, and profound story of wanting to belong somewhere, of taking yeah. yourself out of one place, moving around the world to another place, drastically changing what was familiar to you in your life. In, in, in the Ethiopian community, we're talking about you know, taking very empowered people and making them very not empowered and then having an entire generation of their children looking at that. And, you know, I think of my own children and I'm sure Dan thinks of his own children. We want our children to look up to us. We don't want them to think that we're like loserish people that can't make it on our own. And I think that many people here probably thought that, you know, how come, how come Ima and Abba aren't able to succeed or whatnot? And it's like widen that window and yeah. see the context of what's going on. Mm-hmm. They succeeded in this major way. They fulfilled their dream. And their dream was sure. that you would grow up here in this country and succeed and that they would be able to make that happen. And, um, but it is, you know, you, you, in, and if I go back to the beginning of what we were talking about when we were saying how, you know, in, in the early 70s, Ovada Yosef and the Rabbanut recognized Ethiopian Jewry as... As, as Jews, and, and even by the way, that concept, you know, that somebody here has to recognize your Judaism is, yeah, a, is well. a ridiculous... It's, yeah, not ridic- it it's not ridiculous at all. You have, um, to put this in context, right, um, you have today, um, and this is something that I'm dealing with, uh, you know, at the Jewish People Policy Institute, where, where it's one of my jobs, you have a lot of groups around the world, okay? So these can be groups that claim some sort of Jewish ancestry, uh, groups that maybe have converted or just say decide they're Jewish. Um, you have now in South America thousands of people becoming Jewish either through conversion through one rabbi or another, or saying, "Oh, I'm the descendant of conversos of uh, you know people who were forcibly converted to Christianity." And you know what? At a time, it's it's a complex situation. I'm not saying I have the answer, right. 
but in in this country where we have the 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 law of return where sure. where Jews anywhere can can come here both to fulfill a dream oh. and as a safe haven um, that stamp of being Jewish is also an entry ticket now if you're from a very poor part of the world and Israel is increasingly a really attractive advanced country then you need to have a guardian on who it is that gets to come in. So some countries, no country just lets anybody in. So, you know, in the United States or in Europe or this, um, you say, okay, if you are of this education, of this socioeconomic background, or if you're a recognized UN refugee, right, we're going to take you in according to these criteria. There are a few countries, you know, where it's on ethnic or religious grounds. So we're one. I think uh, in Japan, you can only get in if you're of Japanese descent or something like that, right? There are different countries around the world that have these laws. And I'm not saying that the Rabbanut's you know, the Rabbanut has their one standard. The Ministry of Interior um, says you have to have at least one Jewish grandparent that, that we have to be able to prove that you have a Jewish grandparent. So it's a big question of who gets to decide um, because as Israel has become more and more of an advanced, wealthy country, there's a lot of people who are going to want to come here just right. to escape being in a, in a worse place. Right. And I would thank you for making that clarification. I think what I was trying to say more, and if I want to clarify myself, is that you know, separate from the the experience that people that are Matizos, how do I say that word? Conversos. Conversos in South America or different communities uh, around the world that are converting might be going. We're talking about from the context of the perspective of the Ethiopian community in Ethiopia coming here saying, wait, who, we didn't even know that there were other Jews sure, like right, two right. people ago. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, not, not, we thought we were the only ones and now there's somebody else in another country that, I'm, you know, that's, that has to tell me that I'm Jew. Like, right. I don't understand. Right, so sure. so for them, that context is, is right. strange. Right. Uh, but, but really, I mean, you and I both made Aliyah to this country from the United States. And so for us, the experience of how we made Aliyah was like, for me, I went into the Jewish agency office in Rockville, Maryland. I, I talked to the Shaliach. He was his name was Yair Kalush. If I he's see. listening to this, I did it a year. After I didn't. You, so. I, didn't re- I didn't rent your apartment in Ramat Gan. I'm sorry, uh, but but he was but he was a, you know and you know, there was some paperwork. You filled it out. You went through a background check. I don't remember they whatever you, money. They gave you a free things. plane ticket. I got a free plane ticket, and it was like, oh no, okay, you're here. Get Salklita. Try to you and know if, make it happen. And if you don't That's, like it, you go I'm back happy to for your, you. That was easy. For right. Me. And and like when I got and then later on when I got married, my mom had to go like take some pictures of some dead people's gravestones in different cemeteries to prove that like my great great grandparents were Jewish or something like that because like you said the Rabbanut holds to a different standard than than the than the than the interior ministry but for your community that was completely different it's like you have these laws in the books that for you and me in North America nobody really checked into you know I had a, a letter from a rabbi uh, well that, that's the checking right that was the letter you know that was the checking for you it's like okay, let's have your rabbi write a letter. Well, who's the rabbi? You yeah. know, what's you know, and and, and it's, it was it's, well, they questioned the whole the legitimacy of the entire community, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I think there are people who still do. You know, like you had the issue with the the winery, the winery, right? Balkan winery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, they still giving us a lot of hard times, and um, one of the main problem is that the rabbanot have lots of power, too much power. Yeah, they are like a monopole on saying who is Jew and who is not a Jew. And uh, that's the main problem. Uh, I don't have problem with someone who organize all this, issue, all this subject. But when someone have too much power, that's, that's, that's not good. And um, they have a lot and too much power. And, um, and, and, and as you said before, I don't need someone to tell me that I'm Jew. Uh, you know, I'm here because 
the history of my people is they were all Jews from the beginning to the end. And they sacrificed and kept Judaism, as I mentioned before, sometimes with their life. And I don't need no one to tell me that I'm Jew. I know who I am. And, on, and God knows who I am. And uh, that's the most important thing, to know who you are. If someone will decide if you are a Jew or not, that's, some, that's something else. But you know who you are, and I know who I am, and my people know who they are. And we are Jews from the beginning till the end. And um, if you will see our adults, uh, because the new generation became more secular, but our adults, and you will see how religious they are and how they keep Shabbat and holidays and, and three, three times praying a day. That's, that's even something that when I see that, I see, wow, that's there really religious is there, people is that do that does that generation look at the like the secularism of a younger generation of Ethiopian Jews with some sort of like a disdain do they feel like how is, come we is couldn't sadness yes are they yeah. sad about that yeah because um, they grow up to be Jews not only with the name Jew to, right. to, to, to do things you know to pray to God and, and, and to praise God and to do all the other things to keep Shabbat and all this and you know, we did, they did that in Ethiopia, and they're doing that here. And when they came here, they didn't accept that one day their kids will not keep Shabbat, will not put Yamaka and all this. So I believe that they are, it, it, it's a sad thing for them, uh, because they didn't raise us like that. They raised us to keep, you know, uh, all those things, and, um, you know, when you come here as a young kid, you see different things and, and, and you go uh, to what you think is good for you. Yeah, you see, and you see this a lot with the, the first generation of a lot of uh, Mizrahim who were very traditional. True. And then True. they came here and then the second generation was kind of traditional and then now a lot of people uh, have kind of lost that. Um, so you, we, we talked about this earlier, that the Judaism um, was pre-Talmudic. Uh, Right, it was pre-oral mm-hmm. Torahs, pre-rabbinic Judaism, um, because you had no connections with the rest of the Jewish world. Um, so I'm curious what some common Jewish practices looked like traditionally. Um, so, for example, how Shabbat was observed traditionally, because it was probably more like the Tanakh, more biblical. Yeah. Um, what Kashrut looked like? Was there <coughs> Tefillin and Talit? Because Talit, we do know about Tefillin, we do know about from the Torah, but what did it look like? And then when the community came here, um, was there kind of an adoption um, of Israeli Jewish practices for those who are continuing to be traditional? Are are the next generation of Ethiopian Jews going to either Ashkenazi or, or Sephardic yeshivot and learning and adopting those customs? Is there maybe a new kind of blend that's coming out that's a mix of the Judaism that, that's developed here, which is also a blend of different Ashkenazi and Sephardic practices, um, and, and is kind of, is there a new blend coming out that Ethiopian Judaism and Jewish customs is, is kind of getting involved in that? So, for the first question, um, in Ethiopia we, we kept Shabbat, but we kept Shabbat without the interpretation of what we know today from the oral Torah, of how to keep Shabbat and how to keep uh, the kashrut, 
we didn't eat milk with meat, that's for sure. But we didn't really care, you know, you can have, you can, you can do things with cheese and put milk and put meat on them. Because that's uh, a later interpretation. That's, right. yeah. So we didn't have that interpretation of how to uh, specific details to keep Shabbat. In, but we kept Shabbat. We didn't work. We were dressing white, going to the synagogue. And it was a rest day. We didn't have, for example, we didn't celebrate holidays like Purim or Hanukkah. Because Purim is much later. Because, yeah, Purim Purim and Hanukkah are holidays from the oral Torah, not from the written Torah. So we did Sukkot, Pesach, Shavuot. So so Purim by that time, and even though they mentioned Kush, right, the land of Kush, in the the story of Purim, Mihodu Ad Kush, did that story even ever make it to Ethiopia? No, Wow. Never, never make it. And uh, tefillin and talit, we didn't have that. Did you have something? Because they do mention tzitzit and, and talit. Yeah, so if you will, so if you will right? see our traditional, uh, it's more like a talit, but it's not the talit that you know. Okay. It's not the talit. It's, it's a white thing with some, um, it looks like the talit, but it's not the talit that you know. Uh, and about here in Israel, so here we understood that we didn't have the oral Torah in Ethiopia, and we accept the oral Torah, of course. Uh, we celebrate all the holidays here. Was this a shock? Was this like a massive... Can you imagine so, you, that you have, right, you, you're, you're your own community, you don't even know that there are Jews in other places, 2,000 mm. years, more, 20, 20, whatever, 100 years, and then you kind of, uh, you know, you come back and you're like, okay, first of all, well, there's Jews everywhere, and they don't, most of them don't look like us, <laughs> and then all of a sudden... Oh, hold, hold on. You're telling me that that you've added like a whole nother, you know, bunch of books to the original book that we were practicing. And now the, you know, the, the Judaism that we've been practicing, it's completely, completely changed since then. Like, is this a major uh, jaw-dropping culture shock for the community? So, yeah. Um, so you will find people that will say, oh, we were in the diaspora and in the diaspora we did this and we did that and now we are in the homeland, in the Holy Land and uh, we accept that we were not 100% perfect there. So now we have to accept the Oral Torah. You will find those people. But you will find people that will say, no, they need to learn from us. Those people here in Israel, they need to learn from us how Jews should live. So there is, there is a lot of discussion uh, within the community of how we can teach the other Jews here how we did things in Ethiopia and how they can earn from that. And of course, you will have people that will say, oh, we didn't have this, we need to learn from them. So we need to find the balance in the middle, but you will find people from the two different groups, people that will say this, people that will say that, Where, where are these discussions taking place? We're mostly on network, on Facebooks and things like that. You will have groups yeah. that speaking about that, groups that will say we don't need to live what our parents did 2,500 years and to say what they did was wrong and what's happening here, it's right. What they did, it's right, and what's happening here is wrong. So you, will, you will find those people. You will find people that will say the other thing, that we need to accept we were not perfect And we need to accept what we have here, the oral Torah and all this. And um, yeah, you'll find also Ethiopian Jews, Haredim. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. and they're mainly going to uh, 
Sfaradim uh, yeshivot. And then are they changing then their customs entirely and just True, becoming Sfaradim? Of course. They doing things that uh, when they, for example, when you have Avrech, who is uh, in Sfara, Yeshiva Sfaradit coming to their parents for Shabbat, for example. So this is, uh, for those who don't understand, um, someone who studies full-time in a ultra-Orthodox uh, seminary, right? Okay, and has become ultra-Orthodox. So if they're coming uh, for Shabbat to their parents, they will not eat from their food because it's not... It's not kosher enough. It's not it's kosher not enough, yeah. you know? And this is something that uh, it's really something that in our tradition, in our culture, you don't do this. You don't, you don't do to your parents something like that. It's very you know? insulting. Yeah, I mean, those parents, they brought you to this world. They, they raised you. They did everything for you. And you don't do that. You don't do that. Yeah. Just don't do that. I had, I had a similar story. I grew up um, traditional but not religious. And uh, when I was in college, I, I started becoming more observant. And I remember, I, I know she's going to correct me because my mom listens to these uh, podcasts. Um, she'll correct me on the details because her memory is better than mine. But at one point or another, she, you know, my parents and especially my mom pulled me over for a talk and said, you know, just don't get too religious to the point where you ruin the family and the family dynamic. And it was kind of like um, a metaphorical, kind of like a slap in the face saying, you know, check yourself. You know, yeah. careful. Yeah. You know, we raised you. We're your parents, and 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 family is more important than you know keeping a mitzvah to a, a higher level. And, and I think that they gave me a lot of perspective about where I was going. And and uh, and so I think we make uh, today. You know, when I visit them, they make a really big effort. And you know, they don't have pork in the house. Yeah, they don't have uh, shellfish in the house, but they don't keep kosher like I do. And uh, we kind of make an effort to really look out for each other and kind of, okay, they're going to do their best to accommodate me and I'm not going to be as strict as I might be at home mm-hmm. with them, but uh, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, they're kind of like This is how respect. it should be. Yeah, and it's yeah. hard. It's hard. You know, you have to you have to say, okay, what's more important? You know, shalom bait, yeah. right? Keeping that that respect in the house and that those good family relations in the house is, is sometimes, and you know, I think, uh, you know, as someone who, who does believe, you know, in religion and in God, you know, that's that's one of those things where okay, what what is more important to God, keeping kosher or having good relations with your parents? Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and it's uh, so. Are you seeing this kind of uh, maybe a blend of of Ethiopian customs and traditions and ways coming into Israeli Judaism, or maybe younger Ethiopians of your generation, or even younger, kind of creating a mix that's like a new Israeli Ethiopian kind of Judaism, uh, an Israeli Judaism that's influenced by maybe some Ethiopian customs or ways. Or melodies, or, or you know. I think that uh, we are on their way there. We're still not there. We are on their way because the discussion that we just spoke about that's happening within my community, it's happening and it's happening lately. And I believe that from there we can go on forward to try to do something even more bigger. Pa- pardon the question, just comes from pure ignorance. Are there Ethiopian synagogues? Like yeah. just that are just like yeah. you know, Minhag well, Ethiopia or whatever it's called. Well, it's it will not be only the Minhag of the Ethiopian Jews, but um, it's it's combined the two. Yeah, you know what we came from and from the place we came from to what we have today. So the first Ethiopian synagogue in Israel is uh, was built here in Beersheba, not too far from here. And uh, yeah, we we you have. Ethiopian synagogue, I believe, in, 
in every city that have Ethiopian community. I think we have in Rehovot, right? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. There's a big community there. Yeah, so but the first one is here in Beersheba. So I, I kind of want to shift gears for a second and go towards more of like the, the societal things that are going on today yeah. around the world. But uh, before, before that, uh, or maybe as a segue to that, my wife works as a teacher in elementary school. We live in Gadara. And, you know, to this day, I think, you know, there are very stark differences, at least where we live in Gadara, between the standard of living and standard of education an awareness of, you know, education, uh, performance or such of, of students in the schools that are Ethiopian Jews in comparison to their, to, you know, the other, the other kids in the school. Um, and she often expresses that the state, you know, isn't doing a very good job to this day in doing, you know, in efforts to integrate people, which is, you know, we're like, what, 30, 40 years on. It's, it's like, that to me is, is pretty ridiculous in that there's still like these the only neighborhood that's still like in Gadara that's like a one neighborhood of one like group of people is is Shapira, which is like the the, the Ethiopian neighborhood. It's like there's mm-hmm. no like Iraqi neighborhood or Moroccan neighborhood or Ashkenazi neighborhood. It's like but there is still this Ethiopian neighborhood yeah. and it's not like they're living all around us. It's like they're just in this one neighborhood. And for me coming from the States and like the whole history of segregation and whatnot, living in a city today in twenty twenty in Israel where there's like this all Ethiopian neighborhood. Still like Tem- Temani neighborhoods or kind of like Russian neighborhoods kind of still today. No, I mean in, in my city. Yeah, like we don't have that. But it's, it's it, and then to hear that the kids are having trouble with school and that their parents are having trouble with helping them at school and, and it's, you know, it's frustrating to me mm-hmm. uh, because it's like, what, do, what can I do? What can any of us do? How do we break this, break out of this? How much of this is racism? How much of this is, you know, the history of, you know, uh, failures of the part of the state to, to integrate people correctly and, and how prevalent... Do you, do you think the state's doing a good job, has done a good job um, of integrating uh, the Ethiopian immigrants? No, um, and still not. You see, for example, if we have a school that have 90% Ethiopian Jewish student in that school, for me, it's not a problem. I don't see that as a problem. The problem is that to that school, money will not come. They will not invest in good teachers in that school. That's the main problem. The problem is not how many black Ethiopian Jews living there in that neighborhood. That's not, it's like we're saying if, 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 um, if we have a community that live by themselves, which is something that lots of times happened here in Israel. We have, you know, we have Moshavim of one type of people. That's not the problem. The problem is if you have that neighborhood, put resource. Right. And I, and, I, and I should say that neighborhood in, in Gedera is like the most rundown neighborhood in Gedera. Yeah. So it's, it's not the problem yeah. that they're living together. It's the they, problem that it looks very different from the rest of everything else. And the people aren't that different from everybody else. Yeah. It's, and this is, this is why I'm saying that the government didn't do enough. And, and the problem is not the neighborhood. The problem is not... It's not the school that have 90% Ethiopian Jews. Because, yeah, there is 90% Ethiopian Jews, but the teachers that come and teach in that school are from, you know, the so low, low, low They're point. not the best teachers. They're not the best teachers. They don't put money. They don't, uh, they don't you know, put a lot of effort to take this, uh, this uh, school and bring them to the, you know. Elevate them. My, my wife's also a teacher, and um, she has... Uh, it's a private school, a Dati school. 
and uh, she said she gets a lot of uh, Ethiopian girls from Ramat Eliyahu and Rishon. And she said they're integrated wonderfully in the school and they're doing really well. It's a good school in general and, and, and mm-hmm. I think they're doing a really good job there from what I hear of, uh, of getting the, um, the academic achievements up. Do you, do you see your generation and younger succeeding more and more? I mean, I see it just from, from my casual perspective, but, but you live in this community. Do you see do you see the younger generation succeeding more and more going to university more and more you went to university yeah I mean uh, getting better and better jobs uh, what what, do you, what kind of path are you seeing you're seeing a, a, a positive path of integration and success of course I see positive uh, one of the main things that I want to deliver to the youth is hope you know and there is hope because what I'm seeing today is I see a lot of young people that go in to the academy to university to have a degree and And when you have a degree, there is a big possibility that you will find a decent job that will take you out from the neighborhood and you will be able to create a better life for you and your family. And we see that. We see that. We, we see uh, not only in education, we see in the music industry, we see more and more Ethiopian Jews in the TV. So I still have hope. And uh, in, in the politics area, we see, we have, as sure. I mentioned yeah. before, Uh, um, a minister of Aliyah, Plina Tamanoshata, uh, a deputy minister, uh, Gadi Everkan. Uh, so we are... Are, on, the, are on these the, kind of like, oh, here's someone who made it out and here's someone who made it out, or the whole community is kind of moving up it's slowly? The whole, I think it's the whole community. Yeah. There is a movement uh, of people that understand that to achieve things in life, you have to work hard. It's, yeah. it's, it will not come easy. And uh, we see that. We see the amount of people that have degree yeah. within our communities. 20 years ago, if you would find someone uh, from 10 families, and Ethiopian families are big families, if you would find two or three from 10 families that have a degree, that was wow. Today, in every family, you can find two or three that have a degree. Wow. You know? So we still have lots of challenges. Sure. But in the same time, we have a lot of success, and I hope that it will go on. <laughs> More and more. What about, um, you know, you hear stories of um, people who have Mizrahi names, uh, Arabs, Israeli Arabs, yeah. who, who have, you know, great degrees, great success in school, and then they go to get a job, and you, you kind of always, or they go to rent an apartment, right, and, you, and from a landlord. And you hear yeah. all these stories of like, oh, you know, uh, you, I know stories of people with like an Arab last name or a Mizrahi last name. And they'll send a job application. Dude, they won't get a call back. You don't need to go so far. My wife had that. And then change your my last wife, name to my like wife is, Goldman and you get, you know. My wife, my wife is, is from Iraqi and Persian heritage. Her, last, her maiden name is Yosefian. And when she was applying for jobs as Yosefian, the amount of people from like technology companies in Tel Aviv or whatnot that would get back to her was like very, very small compared to when we got married. And my last name is, is Shoulder, which is like a real... You know as you got whatever and then like all it? of a sudden or even the people they'll show yeah. up to her classroom and it's like okay you know the teacher they, they're expecting one thing and then they walk in and they see yeah. a brown face and it's like wait isn't this they get to the right place and <laughs> do you have so, that also? Yeah. of course of course uh, it's happening a lot when for example you have a phone interview and you don't have an accent and no one can realize that there is a black person speaking with you on the other phone. And when you come and see him face to face and it's like, oh, you're the guy that spoke with me on the phone. And then, um, yeah, we have that. It's something that exists. But as I said, uh, sometimes you will have those difficulties in life. You will find them. 
but it's a challenge and it's a challenge that we have to move forward and, and win that. Uh, but it's happening. It's still happening. At the same time, you will find a lot of people, good people that will say, oh, oh this guy, yeah, he have a degree. Uh, he's from the Ethiopian Jewish community. I want to work and I want to uh, take this uh, community forward and help them. So sometimes it's for your own benefit. Sometimes uh, it's not easy. Uh, but again, we will find those challenges all the time. We have to go over them. What I'm curious about uh, marriage. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things that um, already, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you already had Ashkenazim and Izbachim starting to marry together. Yeah. And now the Russians, right, who came later and are marrying with everyone. So everyone's marrying with everyone. Are the Ethiopian Jews also marrying with everyone? And yeah, so... When how, how does that work? So it's work like that. When we came... When a man falls in love with a woman. <laughs> <laughs> or a man with a yeah. man, or a woman with a woman. We're yeah. not judging. <laughs> well, uh, well, at the beginning, it was uh, mainly weddings within the community because um, it's people that know your culture and understand sure. you and things like that. But the more we are living here, this generation is a different generation. And today you will find a lot of uh, people from the Ethiopian Jewish community getting married with Ashkenazim, with different uh, Sephardim. So you will find a lot of intermarriage within our community. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, always, I'm, I'm always saying uh, the Ashkenazim taking our girls. <laughs> because a lot of Ashkenazim getting married with Ethiopians, women. I want to believe, but it sounds like from what you're saying, that um, the path is one to becoming Israeli and, and like another Israeli hyphenated group, you know, and, and part of the Israeli mosaic. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'd like to believe that, but from everything I'm hearing from you, it sounds like it's actually, it's actually happening, which is encouraging. It is happening. Yeah. It is. So... Um, Let's take a, a kind of a step out to kind of a global perspective. And, um, you know, I think with COVID and, and with the presidential elections, we're, we're starting to forget. But just a couple months ago, there were massive uh, riots in America and Black Lives Matter. We've talked about it. Our second guest, we had a whole uh, focus um, about it. Really curious to hear your perspective as an Israeli Jewish black man, which is going to be probably different than an American black man or an American Jewish uh, black person, you know, one of the the things that it's drawn attention to, uh, the Black Lives Matter in America, and, and even around the rest of the world, is police relations with people of color or with with black people and police brutality. I'm curious if you or people you know uh, from the Ethiopian Ethiopian community have had what kind of relations you've had with Israeli police, and, and over the years, and then you've been to America a lot, I know, because you go on a lot of speaking tours. Uh, if you've had any kind of interactions with American police, for example? Uh, so it's never happened to me in America. Uh, but here in Israel, uh, our community, unfortunately, do suffer from police brutality. You will find a lot of people that really afraid when they see a cop, which is something that's very weird because a cop is someone that needs to protect and guide you. And you will find a lot of people within my community, especially mothers, who afraid when they see a cop. Why is that? Because in the last years, we found a lot of young people that were killed and shot by police. And therefore, a lot of mothers are afraid that their son will be the next one to be shot by police. Yeah, I think just last year we had the, the shooting of Solomon Teka. Solomon Teka, and uh, there was another one, Biadge. 
Right. So there is police brutality and there is racism in Israel. Why do you think that is? I think that here in here, Israel, here, yeah. here in Israel is because people don't know. People don't know us. People are, you know, people think that black people coming from Africa, from jungle, blah, 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 all this. And, uh, and sometimes people raise that way. You know, their families raise them that way to think that black, it's wrong, black, it's in all this. And um, it's, that's the problem here in Israel. It's not something that comes from the government down to the people. It's in the people, you know. In America, I think it's different. In America, over the years, 100 years, it's deeply rooted within the system, you know. People were educated to see black people as law for hundreds of years right. from slavery time. So it's deeply rooted in the system. Here in Israel, it's from inside of the people. It's not from the government down. You know? And this is why I have hope that we can change that. In America, we can change everything. In America, it will be much more difficult to change it because it's something... You know, maybe if this generation time will go and you will raise another generation, maybe. But here in Israel, I know that if we will educate people and speak to people, and it's a minority here. It's not, it's not a majority of people that think. It's a minority of people. If we can catch them and speak and teach them, then we can change that. I'm not sure we will delete racism, police brutality, but we can try and minimize it. Here we can minimize it. In America, it will take another generation or that generation, the old one will go because the, the problem is with the old people. You know, the one that grew up like this when they were kids. I hate old people. <laughs> no, I, I respect. <laughs> I, I have a lot of respect to old people, but old people coming with their agenda and how they've been taught they have and, the baggage, right? Yeah, with their baggage. And um, they teach their kids, you know, what they've been taught. And um, as I said, in America, it's really deeply rooted within the system. And that's why we see what we see. And here we see that as well. But it's, 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 it's a different thing. I'm always curious. And it's something that, you know, people are like terrified to talk about. Um, because you could very easily sound racist uh, and maybe... Maybe this will come off as very racist, and I certainly don't mean it to. Um, but but it's something that, from a social science perspective, I'm really curious about. You know, you said at the beginning that originally the Ethiopian Jews were put in their own kind of communities, which were obviously poor because these were immigrants who had to leave everything behind, and that bred a lot of crime and drugs and things like that. In a place where the police are used to seeing a lot of crime, do they then approach? the people that they're used to seeing from those kind of neighborhoods who have black skin, right? And say, okay, they're kind of like maybe subconsciously associating people who look like this with a lot of crime. And then they're approaching anyone they see who looks black, which now includes also, you know, Sudani foreign workers um, who I don't know if, if the average Israeli can tell the difference between an Ethiopian Jew and a Sudani worker. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Do you think it's kind of like it comes from there or it comes from an old racism or maybe kind of a mix of that? Like what? So this is what exactly the chief of the police said a few years ago, mm. that it's natural and it's okay to suspect 
I'm not saying you know. it's okay. No, no. I'm just, I remember when he said this. This, this is, was. Uh, this is what he said. Okay. And uh, that's the mind of a racist person. Mm. This is how he thinks. He thinks that, okay, if there is, let's say, for example, if there is a lot of crimes within this neighborhood that have the vast majority of Ethiopian Jews, then probably all of them are someone that we have to look up. And this is the mind of a racist person because someone who thinks that he can think that all the people are the same, then his mind is not good. Right. You know? So what we are asking is that everyone will be judged by his own character and his own, sure. you know, him himself. And, uh, and, and, and this is what the police have to do to change the right. way they see things. So, so they don't, right? Or at least... They, 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 at least they don't. They don't. So then you, you see this dynamic and you see it in America, I think, uh, maybe to a greater extent in America, but please correct me uh, if I'm wrong here. You see this dynamic and the police kind of maybe are ingrained to approach uh, people of darker skin more suspiciously. And then you see people from the Ethiopian community become suspicious of police. And so then they're going to act differently around police, which makes them seem suspicious, which makes the police suspect them more. And it's kind of like this... this You're talking about like a cycle of... It's like a spiral. It's, a, it's like a spiral. There, there's a story of... Um, I want to say Malcolm Gladwell, where he writes about um, a story of, of a, an immigrant from, excuse me, so, you know, an African country in New York. Normal guy, working guy. And the police just like pulled up next to him. And he freaked out because... And then the un- unmarked car. Unmarked car, police pulled up next to him. Unmarked, unofficed, ununiformed police officers jump out because they see a black guy trying to get into, they didn't know it was his building. It was his building. Yeah. And they jump on this guy, and instead of, and, and you know, it de-escalates within seconds, and they end up shooting him, like, tens of times. And turns out he was just trying to take his keys out of his. But he was freaked out because these people, is there a reaction here of, of probably more men uh, young men from the Ethiopian community, when they see police, that they're going to act more suspiciously because of these tensions, and then the police say, "Wait, why is he acting suspiciously?" And then there's kind of like this cycle. Well, maybe because a lot of again, I'm not trying to blame no, the no, Ethiopian I'm guys. Saying, I'm just I'm trying saying, to understand the dynamic. I'm saying maybe because the the meeting between police policemen and young Ethiopian Israelis, sometimes the young Ethiopian Israel will be afraid from the beginning. Yeah, because he he, he will be sure that okay, he will. This guy's going to harass me. He's going to harass him. Yeah. He's going to do something for him. So he's afraid. Uh, but on the other hand, you will have a lot of Ethiopian Israelis that know and have self-confidence within themselves. For example, me. If I will find a policeman, then I will know how to speak with him. And sometimes, just by speaking to him, the way I'm speaking to him will make, his, will make him mad. You know, he will be mad because like, like how what? can yeah, you speak? Like how do you have to give speak? Like I know my rights. I want to, uh, you know, give me your idea. I'm speaking the way I'm normal person supposed to speak. And this is not the behavior that he was uh, thinking that I will behave. What's he expecting? Maybe to do problems, to do this, to, be, to speak the way, to curse him and things like that. And then I'm standing n- near him and I'm telling him, okay, I know my rights. I know I want to know why. You know, all the things that a normal person will ask the policeman. The main problem is that, you know, we have in the Torah, we say, don't look in the battle, look in what's inside the battle. Right. Right? And 
it's not only police. It's people, people, as people. You know, it's like people will look at me now with the dreadlocks. They will see, oh, this guy, Rastaman, he's smoking weed all day, you know. And, 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 and it's not true. I mean, I'm not a Rastaman. No, I'm it's a Jew. Like it's every other day. I mean, it's not <laughs> I, I'm a Jew. It's only the you know. Um, so we, we as people, we have to try to see beyond the outside, you know, from the inside. It's very easy to judge someone from yeah. the outside. Very easy. You know, and, and this is exactly what we don't want people to do. We want people to, not to judge because we, who, who we are to judge, but if you want to know someone, know him from the inside. Know who he yeah. is. is. Is there a, a, an effort from the police, from the leadership of the Ethiopian community here to kind of get to understand each other more? You know, is, is there an effort to put more policemen of Ethiopian origin in the police to help police uh, Ethiopian areas so there's less of these kind of cultural miscommunications perhaps or maybe these cultural misunderstandings? So yeah, there is a lot of things that uh, people are doing in order to solve the problem between uh, the, the police and the Ethiopian Jewish community. Sometimes to put more, more officers within the police. But again, we can do lots of things. But every policeman in Israel should know that he have to understand that there is someone in the inside of every man. Yeah. And uh, to judge from the outside, maybe this is something they need to do their job. But when he finally meets the person, try to know him, trying to see who he is, and not coming with this idea of, ah, oh, it's a black man, it's Arab man, you want to do this, you want to bomb the bus, you want, no. You know, it's, it's not working that way. So it's, it's more up to them to do what they need to do. You know, we can, we can help, we can do things, but if you ask me, the police need to do more work within themselves. Interesting. You know, one of the things that, uh, that's happening now, so at least in America, you have a lot of people who are, are black Jews in America find themselves in a tough spot uh, having to talk about you know, they want to be connected, obviously, to the Jewish community. There's the connection uh, at some level or another to Israel. Uh, and they find themselves having to do, uh, you know, what's called Hasbara, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of defending Israel from, from critics um, and now from anti-Semitism. And, you know, a lot of times they're asked about issues of Israeli racism. And, of course, we have racism here. We've talked about it. There's racism, plenty of racism towards Arabs here um, also. You know, how do you find yourself connecting to this concept of Hasbara? When you're talking to communities abroad, um, how do you, from your perspective and your unique identity where you're Israeli and you're Jewish, but you're also experiencing racism mm-hmm. on the wrong end of it? Well, there's no right end of it, but on the, on the harder end the of it. The blunt end. The blunt end of racism here. But you're still trying to talk about Israel and talk about the Jewish people. What, what's that dynamic like for you? Well, this is my country. And my country is not perfect yet. We have to understand it's only 70 years old. You know, she's, she's, she's bright new. And, and, and she's not perfect, you know. Uh, we can say that. It's okay. We, we're not perfect yet. But we are trying to do something to change what's happening here, you know. We're trying to create a better society here. Yes, we do have racism and discrimination. We do have police brutality it's something that it's, it's here. But we love this country. I mean, I love my country. And if you see something that is wrong in your family, 
you will try to fix it, yeah. right? To fix it, right? Yeah, and and there is something wrong in my family, like when I'm speaking about Israel, because it's we are all brothers and sisters, and there is something wrong, and we're trying to change that because we know it's hurting us. It's not only hurting the Ethiopian Jews; it's hurting the Israeli society, and we are trying to change that, to solve that problem, to make a better Israel. So, yes, we do have, and this is what I will say to uh, uh, the black Jews in America, um, there is nothing, yeah, you can protect Israel, you can do whatever you want to do with Israel, and, 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 and to say, yeah, Israel is not perfect yet. She's not perfect, I mean. And, and we are on their way to be perfect. We're not perfect yet. That's it. It's simply as that. Do you have thoughts on uh, unrelated to, to the Jewish, uh, black Jews or the Jewish community? Do you have general thoughts on everything that's happening in America right now as far as race relations coming to the front once again? Well, Black Lives I'm, Matter and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, so um, first I would say that uh, within the Jewish people, one of the main things that I don't like, you spoke about black, black Jews and Jewish community, yeah. which are... You spoke about them as separate things. And this is something I don't understand because here we don't have that term black Jews. Right. You know, you have Ethiopian Jews, you have Moroccan Jews, you have uh, American Jews, you have this, but you don't have black Jews or Jews of color, something yeah. like that. Yeah, this that, is something that, term that doesn't exist here. Yeah, and it's something that I don't understand uh, why people are using that term Jews of colors to the black people. Because white is a color as well. So Jews are Jews. There is no Jews of color. There is Jews. The way we see things here. And um, the Black Lives Matter and what's happening. I'm, I'm, I'm so sad uh, of what happened to George Floyd and, and the murder of him. And it's something that uh, even not as a black man, as a human being, it's, sure. it's hard to see. It's hard to see a policeman killing someone. It's... it's, it's you know, it's it's sad, very sad. And uh, I do understand the black community trying to defend and fight for their right. But, you know, sometimes uh, those organizations trying to take uh, their fight, which is the fight of the people, of, hum- of humanity, you know, it's not only their fight. But they're taking the fight and trying to compare it to different places. And when they try to compare it to Israel, for example, as I said, in America, is way too deeply rooted within the system. Here, it's something within our society. It's 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 a it's a minority within the society. We can change that. We can work on that. And this is why I created my social project, Heroes, in order to bring people together. Uh, I think that if we want to fight against something, it's not trying to compare between people or uh, 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 different countries. Uh, I would suggest, and if I would be able to do, is trying to see how we can bring people together. Not, not uh, you know, uh, telling people that, oh, you know, in Israel there is racism and, and police brutality and therefore the Jews in America are racist. You know, it's not, it's not how you fight. Uh, for me, it's more how to bring people together. You know, and when I see the relationship of the black 
Americans in America in the 60s and the Jewish community in America in the 60s, that's something that we need to learn from. You know, when um, uh, Martin Luther King and Rabbi Heschel walk together, uh, one is Jew, one is a black man, and they are all fighting for the freedom of the person, of the people. And, um, and, and, and we, not, we need to see what can bring us together, not something that can divide us. So this is what I would suggest for Black Lives Matter movement to do, you know, to try to find something that can bring them and bring other groups together, right. not separate them from others. I, I would think also one of the things that would specifically bother you more than, more than other things is like there are many people that are on the correct side of being anti-racist in the States who would, you know, based out of ignorance or based out of... Uh, and I don't want to say being more malicious than that, but you know, they look at Israel as a white supremacist state. They've they've adopted the narrative of race relations in the United States of systemic racism, and they've applied it to our conflict with the Palestinians or with the Arab world, and they've put us in the role of a colonialist regime where we're trying to advance white agenda uh, over brown people in Israel. Um, when, when clearly we who live in Israel, who you know, more than fifty percent of the people in this country are not of European origin in any case. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's always been something that's bothered me, which is, a, you know, it, to me it expresses the fact that the people that are leveling that criticism against us just don't have a clear understanding of what this country is. Um, but perhaps for you it's, it's also like, you know... Doubly hurtful. Right. right. Yeah, well, well, yeah, you know, um, everything that happened in this world, whether it's for the black race or for the Jews it's something that hurt me you know when I see what I see today what's happening in America and sometimes here in our country all over the world for black people it's hurt me because I'm a black man the first thing that people see when they see me they see my color they don't see my religious you know they don't see my who me as a Jew when I see what's happening in America for example what happened in Pittsburgh that's hurt me, you know, because I'm a Jew. So I'm always saying to black people in America and to Jews in America, if you think that it's your life is hard because you are a Jew and your life is hard because you are a black man, then think about me. I'm a black man and a Jew at the same time. So there is yeah. someone who suffer more than you, <laughs> you know? Uh, but uh, in terms of... Um, What's happening here in the Middle East, uh, we just had a new agreement with uh, the Emirates. Unbelievable. And, and, and I think that it will change a lot of things. Because for a lot of years, peace here in the Middle East was something that had to do something with the Palestinians. If Palestinians are not in, then it will not happen. Right. It was and, for the first time, and for the first time, we're doing peace for peace. You know, we don't give land, we don't give that, we don't give this. We're doing peace for peace. And I think that a lot of Arab countries in this area are trying, are, are starting to realize that Israel is not the enemy. And it's you not know? going anywhere either. And she's not going anywhere. She will stay here. And Israel is not the enemy. And you can only benefit from making a peace with Israel. Because we have what we have. They have what they have. And I think that we are starting to see... You know, Paris said a new Middle East. And 
he is not here anymore, but I'm, I'm starting to see a new Middle East because I, I believe that it will not be the only peace agreement with uh, countries in the era. We will have more. And the more we will have, the Palestinians will understand that they have to do peace with us because we want peace. I hope so. And yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, we want peace. I think it'll be in their interest, uh, even though they, some of them might not agree with me now. But uh, And make sure, uh, for those listening, next week we're going to have a whole special on the Middle East and geopolitics with a uh, one of the best experts in Israel on uh, these kind of topics. Are you familiar, I mean, I know a handful of Ethiopian Israelis who moved to the American Jewish community. Is there much of a community of... Um, Ethiopian Israelis in America? Yeah. Well, you know, as Israelis, all Israelis, uh, you know, when they see America, they see the land of opportunity. You know, you can go there and become rich and then and, and all this. So as any other Israelis, Ethiopian Israelis as well, going to try themselves in America. And yeah, you will find... Do you, have, of, do you have friends who've yeah, done yeah, this? Yeah, of course. And of what's, course. what's I have experience? a nephew. I have a nephew there living in New York. Uh, work in uh, in the moving uh, <laughs> of course <laughs> you know, in the moving thing and um, well uh, for example he's been there for 14 years already and uh, I know that he wants to return he wants to return because yeah he is lonely and his family is here and uh, he wants to get married and bring his children here in Israel. You know, uh, he is uh, one of the guys that think to himself, oh, my parents did what they did, not for me to go to New York, but for me to be here and be with them. So he went there for money and for uh, the opportunities that America is bringing. But um, many people are coming back in the end. In the end, they're coming back. Sure. I know with a lot of conversations and, and from the conversation we had, um, uh, on our second podcast with um, with uh, Rabbi Shays uh, Rishon, who's uh, who's also part of Tribe Herald, you know they talk a lot about for Black American Jews who come to Israel, they don't get a nice experience always, at least from the government, the police, whatever. Um, what would you say? And, and if you meet people within the Jewish community in America uh, who are Black, uh, probably on your trips, what would you say to them about those who want to come to Israel? Uh, maybe make Aliyah to Israel uh, or visit Israel at least and are kind of scared? You know, what would you say to them? Well, um, well, nothing to be scared first. There is nothing to be scared of. I mean, if they're coming from America, so they're coming from a country that have been experienced almost everything. And there is nothing to be scared. I mean, um, yeah, as I said, sometimes it's not easy also here. But there is nothing to compare to what's happening in America. And I would suggest them to come. It's a beautiful country. There's a lot of opportunities. And if they want to practice Judaism in a free way, then this is the country. And uh, if they are suffering from time to time, practice their Judaism there, so they can come here. And they can find a lot of black Jews like them here. You know, it's not, it's not America that you see from time to time. Here... We have 150,000 Ethiopian Jews, so they will feel part of something even bigger. You know, so you're more than welcome. Come. We'll put you in touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how people get in touch with you, maybe share a little bit about your book and things that you got going on. So um, 
if people want to be in touch with me, they should uh, log on or visit my website, jewsofethiopia.com. Um, just a bright new website, so please check that. And we'll link it on the website, of course. Um, and and they, they have all the info about me, about Yeru's project, about all the things that I'm doing, where I'm visiting, um, because usually I'm doing tours around the world, and um, I postponed my tour in Washington, D.C. that was supposed to be happening in April. So if they want to see where I am, they can just log on to my website and see exactly where I am in this world. And um, if they want to uh, invite a Zoom uh, event with me, so they can do everything from the website, um, jewsofethiopia.com. Awesome. And in a, in a post-COVID world, when groups are in Israel visiting, you do tours also in Israel. Yeah, of the- yeah, yeah. Doing lots of things here in Israel, especially here in Beersheba. Uh, we are also building uh, a new museum, first time in Israel. Wow. Art and Culture Museum of Ethiopian Jews here in Beersheba. Awesome. The opening will be in January 2020, 2021. Uh, and uh, it's a big thing's coming. And uh, first time in Israel, a museum of art and culture of Ethiopian Jews here in the city of our fathers, uh, Beersheba. That's awesome. That's really, really awesome. So we first and foremost want to thank you very much for uh, for your time. Uh, I also want to say that I hope, from a tourism perspective, because uh, I, I like to say in my in the real world, <laughs> no, this is the real world in your um, normal life. In, in my normal life, uh, working in tourism. That, what you just described, sounds like an amazing opportunity for any group that's interested in discovering uh, something dynamic and something of, of great interest uh, in, in Israel, and especially when coming to Beersheba, which is a city that's beautiful but often isn't as visited by groups uh, as, as others, and it definitely should be. So. Is, Israel is more than Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. What? Correct. What? I'm, not, I'm just saying. <laughs> Israel is more than uh, yeah, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Rehovot. So let's hope that, let's hope that, this, uh, that this garbage COVID period gets, gets over as soon as possible. <laughs> we can get back to things. But, uh, but yeah, so everybody should check out uh, Naftali's website. Everybody yeah. should check out... And pay uh, attention to Tribe Herald for the article that will come out uh, talking about parts of this and uh, parts of these dynamics that we discussed. 100%. And uh, and that's it. So Dan, if you have anything else or Naftali, uh, this has just been uh, uh, it, it's been eye opening and mind blowing to take two different metaphors. Um, first of all, the whole story and the history, but also uh, I, I know we appreciate the ability to have these conversations that really let us into someone else's experience because we're all part of one country and one society. But you know we have sub sections of the society and and to get this um we appreciate the the honesty and the candor that that you you let us into your experience in your world here which i think makes us more connected to the country that we're living in and the society and the jewish people that we're a part of so uh, i just i really appreciate it and this was this has been fascinating this has been absolutely fascinating so i would like to thank you both for giving me the opportunity and the platform to tell my story in the community and, and the story of my community and and I really hope you know that uh, we are going to better days and uh, create a better society here in Israel and a stronger Israel. And education is the key. Uh, we have to educate people. Absolutely. And thank you for this opportunity to educate the viewers about my community. Awesome, awesome. I'm Israel Chai. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much, Naftali Aklum, and uh, this has been Juanced. See you next week. 
Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.